tuning into Power Athlete Radio. Filmmaker, athlete, wrestling enthusiast, and truth seeker Chris Bell joins us on this week's premiere podcast on strength and conditioning. If you're serious about lifting, you've probably seen Bigger, Stronger, Faster and may distinctly remember the niche community it represented. Creator of this amazing film and the latest documentary, Trophy Kids, talks shop with John and the crew. Among the topics closest to Chris's heart is the ketogenic diet. Chris discusses what sparked his fascination with the concept of ketosis and the life-changing experience of conducting interviews for his upcoming film. Hear stories about his childhood, movies, and life as a man striving to learn more about the world of performance. Get a glimpse into the creative, meathead mind of Chris Bell. This is episode 204. Power Athlete Nation, what is up you got luke here john sitting around the table say hi john what's happening and tex howdy and ladies and gentlemen are we gonna do the echo all right let me see the echo what you are about to embark on is another episode of the premier podcast in strength and conditioning yeah we uh we just recently got a soundboard and we're all enamored with the fact that we can change it up yeah, and the change the, the echo thing. So we've been just morons. But Tex and, I, Tex and I have a surprise for listeners because we've been saying we're the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. And spoiler alert, we have Chris Bell on today. And if you don't believe it, Chris, here's what we're going to do to create, an, like to, to convince you people. Are you guys ready? All right, here we go. Okay, Google. What is Power Athlete Radio? Listen. According to Power Athlete. Power Athlete Radio is the premier podcast of strength and conditioning. You heard oh, it there. It's Google official. It's on John. Google. It's on the internet. The internet is insane. It's got yeah. to be true. No. We just, we just hooked know, up uh, with the NSA, man, and they, we put, had them put it in there, and everything's good. All right. No but, more bullshit. We have uh, one of uh, not only a premier podcasting guest, but also somebody selfishly I've wanted to get on the podcast for a long time. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure. actually super stoked that you were able to make the time to get us on. You know, I mean, you're, you know, big time Joe Rogan, all this other stuff, mm-hmm. which, you know, he's not the premier podcast strength and conditioning, thank God. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, what, uh, selfishly, uh, dude, one, I've wanted to rap with you a lot more. I mean, every time, like you said, we run into each other, it's kind of in passing and we got one chance to kind of, yeah. and, um, I was kind of bummed out. I didn't get to rap with you a bunch more because there was a lot of questions and a lot of different things I wanted to connect on. So, uh, well, let's talk about like we had Frank Willis on and we had Turley lined up. So kind of, let's just jump right into that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, um, what's. There was a, you know, this thing kind of started, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, the NFL concussion deal is very near and close to my heart as an NFL player and having lost a lot of friends. Uh, and we had Fred Willis on, who's a former NFL player. You guys listen to that podcast talking about the concussion settlement and kind of a lot of the uh, the dirt behind this, the scenes of that stuff. And, um, uh, you know, and on the other side, especially my good friend Kyle Turley, who's been dealing with um, some early onset uh, Alzheimer's and really kind of fighting the band, fighting this good fight on yeah. cannabis and treating cannabis for a lot of the brain stuff. And, uh, you know, I really thought about getting Chris on cause one, I wanted to hear, um, you know, I'd like to talk a little bit of bigger, stronger, faster, but I'd love to hear, uh, about, you know, your new deal with the, is it, is it, uh, Creighton, Creighton? Uh, Kratom, Kratom, you know, yeah, people Kratom. pronounce it both, uh, both differently, but, uh, Kratom's a plant from Southeast Asia that is sold as a dietary supplement here in the United States. And the reason why the DEA has uh, put a schedule one intent to ban out for Kratom is really uh, interesting. It's a, it's a uh, plant. I don't call it a drug and I don't call it an opiate. It's a plant with opiate-like effects uh, that works on the brain, but it works to a degree. And this is what people really need to understand right off the bat. 
it's about a thousand times less potent than a Vicodin, but it still works for pain. Mm -hmm. That's how strong these pain drugs are that we're taking, right? So it, it works great for pain. Um, get takes rid of, I have arthritis. I had double hip, re, double hip replacement surgery nine years ago. And, um, for me, I'm in pain every single day. If I can wake up and, um, make it to the gym without this whole sort of glaze of, of pain over my entire body, this chronic pain, uh, I would, you know, I wouldn't be able to make it to the gym or if I went to the gym, it would just be kind of uh, half-assed. Now I'm not squatting and deadlifting, you know, super training weights anymore or your guys weights anymore but I can be healthy and I can train hard and I can feel good. And that's, what's important. So that's why, I, that's why I started taking Kratom. And then as I started taking it, the DEA came in and said, well, we're going to ban it. And that's where this movie came from. Well, the, uh, you know, Kyle in, in a similar vein, I mean, Kyle, when, um, you know, we were playing, uh, you know, was constantly dealing with pain and for some reason, um, and I, I've talked to numerous people, you know, big, you know, very intelligent doctors on this whole deal. And uh, for some reason, uh, the pain never bothered me from playing in the NFL the same way it bothered other guys. So like I knew other, you know, a lot of guys that were chewing up Vicodins and kind of on a lot of painkillers and they asked me and I was like, I never really took that stuff just cause yeah, I hurt, but it didn't affect me in the same way. And, uh, you know, but then I was laughing recently with my mom where she was like, do you remember when you were like seven years old and you got a cavity? And I'm like, not really. And she's like, you went to the doctor and actually had the doctor drill your tooth without Novocaine, without any numbing agent because you wanted to feel with it and you didn't flinch. And, uh, you know, so like even as a young kid, like I always had like a pretty high pain threshold. And I sure. think like maybe that contributes, uh, you know, genetically. But um, Kyle was one of those guys that took a you know decent amount of painkillers. And then when he got out, he started exhibiting more and more problems. And all they started doing was just stacking more and more drugs. Yeah, on they top. stack. Yeah. They give you, so, give you different stuff. Yeah. So then they were like, at one point they were, you know, the comment is we have to find the right combination for you. Like and, the right cocktail, right? Well, yeah. And, and he, you know, and he, he's like driving around, he's in his car. He's like having thoughts of like veering off and killing people. He like, you know, like his wife found him like, you know, in the, you know, in the window ready to jump out. He started having visions of like murdering people. And he got to the point where he was like, man, I can't, uh, this stuff is going to either kill me or kill people around well, me. It's a bad deal. Look at, look at guys like our boy, uh, junior Seau. He was a stud for USC where I went to school. You know, um, I just feel so bad for him and his family. You know, he was, uh, he was a maniac on the field and he was also a maniac off the field. And a lot of that had to do with later on, we found out like opiates and all sorts of other uh, mental issues due, due to the uh, ALS and the, you know, the brain trauma and, you know, all these things can be helped. All these things can be avoided and all these things can be fixed. Mm -hmm. um, but we have people in office uh, like, like Trump right now, he wants to get rid of healthcare for uh, addicts and for mental health patients. Well, mental health patients are people that died like my brother, you know, mm -hmm. that's mental health patients. There was no, there, there wasn't much help for him when he was getting help uh, to begin with. Um, my parents were broke trying to pay for all the treatment that he had to go through. And it still didn't work at the end of the day. He, you know, he's not here anymore. So I think, um, you know, by taking away these programs for addiction and counseling and uh, mental health and all these things is going to be detrimental to our athletes. And I think as athletes, we got guys big and strong, like John Wellborn can, uh, that can fight the fight. You know, I think as athletes, if we band together with, um, people that are names in the sports, in the, in the big sports world too, um, we can get people, you know, sort of a grassroots movement to, um, to get people out of pain, to get people off of opiates, to get people mental health treatment, to do all these things 
but people need to come together in order to do it. It can't be just like one guy talking. And a lot of times I feel like that's what I'm doing. It's like, I'm just one guy out talking all the Dude, time. Uh, but so I mean, I'm trying to, trying to make some action happen with some of these things as well now, you know? I mean, don't, don't sell yourself short. I mean, dude, you, uh, as a, you know, kind of, uh, I mean, I, I hate to use the word like as an indie filmmaker, but really is like making these documentaries and sure. That's um, what it and, is. Yeah. yeah. I mean it, but uh, like, the power and like the reach. I mean, I think I told you the story when, uh, you know, one of our closest friends and, and, you know, uh, Nate who, uh, who trained with us for years, uh, he literally saw your movie and left there and decided he wanted to get strong and literally searched me out and found me and, and has become one of our closest friends. And I That's remember amazing. when I, uh, when I went out to, I went out for a couple of weeks to hang out with Louie when he was starting a certification and I brought Nate with me and I remember like us driving to Westside and him, like, he got all quiet. I'm like, what's up, man? He's like, I can't believe we're going to go to Westside Barbell. I'm like, what? And then he tells me the story he had never told me about seeing your movie. And it was so impactful. Yeah. And like, this completely changed the vein of his life. I mean, so like that in itself is, you know, you never know how far these things are going to reach, but, uh, on a, the, the fact that people will see me in the gym, like in golds right now, I just, I just got back from golds and walking through and I see this guy with a super training shirt. And like, <laughs> oh, this guy's going to, he's coming right for me, you know? And he comes up and he's like, Hey, what's up, man? I just want to let you know that your movie completely changed my life. Like the reason that I'm here right now is I just moved out here. Like I'm starting to lift like everything and everything. I'm like <clears throat> this guy did that for me. Like I did that for Arnold, but like Arnold was a big, you know, big giant movie star. So I think like, um, with the power of social media, the power to interact and the power to, I was talking to, um, Tate Fletcher actually like a year ago, I think we were at like probably at the CrossFit games or something. We we're hanging out talking about how cool it is that we have like, you have access to people now. Like you can mm -hmm. talk to the experts, you know, you can go to something like the games and, and talk to other people, or you can go to like uh, a powerlifting meet and you can meet, like you just, you just are able to like meet so many people that are interesting now and contact them through like social media and all these platforms and, and outlets that we live in a really interesting time where like, if you got a question, you can now like ask the main guy, you don't have to ask some, you know, side expert, you can, you can go ask the expert and you can you know, a lot of times get an answer. So I think uh, we live in really interesting times. And for me, I have the ability to get to some bigger people that other people can't get to. I was just in Austin, Texas, and I called up Lance Armstrong and he said, why don't you come over to my house and be on the podcast? Like that shit's awesome. You know, yeah, yeah. to be able to have access to those kind of people uh, is what I'm talking about uh, going a longer way and changing the world in the way that we do things. You brought up Junior Seau. Um, little known fact, my second year in the NFL, um, I, I came in and started as a rookie and got hurt. And then my second year, I came back and started 16 games. And my welcome to the NFL moment was granted by Junior Seau. We were playing uh, the Chargers. And uh, I'm playing left guard. And I had to basically, like, it was a you know play to the right. And I got to somehow cut him off. And I take this like incredible angle. Like there was no way he was going to beat me. And this dude literally ran over the top of me, which means he beat me to the spot and then ran around me and made the play. <laughs> and I, I, I'm not kidding you. Like I had four or five yards start on him and I knew where the ball was going and he still beat me to the, uh, beat me in front of me and got there. And I remember he made the play and I was like, Jesus. And he kind of like went back and he slapped Amazing. me on the butt and was like, you know, pretty much like welcome to the NFL. And then I saw him at the end of the game. And uh, John Perella came over, and I remember Junior came over, and he tapped me on the head, and he's like, uh, "I'll see you at the Pro Bowl." And I was like, <laughs> "I was like, yeah, right." So then the next year, um, I didn't make it, but uh, I should have. I should have made it, and I was an alternate, and um, ended up going to the Pro Bowl, you know, uh, as a invited guest. And I see Junior, and he like points at me, and is like, "Come on." Uh, he not only drank me under the table every night I was there, 
and I know this because we would go, we'd get home about four thirty in the morning, three o'clock, and and I remember um, going to my balcony to throw up and looking out and seeing him running on the beach at like five a.m. We even got home at like maybe four thirty, four four o'clock. Yeah, and I remember thinking like this dude. He drank like seven times more drinks than I did. Absolute savage. Uh, and then here That's, he is fucking running on the beach. And like at the time, I just, I, I just chalked it up to like this dude's fucking, he's he, he's he man. He's a fucking superhuman. <laughs> you know, years later did I learn that like he couldn't sleep, um, you know, and like had all of these like, you know, problems. Yeah, that sure. Yeah, was, it's, a, it's an issue. Yeah, it was, was an he, issue that he was having and he couldn't tell you. So he was just out, out there running because like that's all he knew how to do. You know, he's just yeah. like, he's just going through the motions at that point, right? But he, um, uh, not only like, it was one of those things and I remember him like tapped me on the head and it was like him saying like, Hey, I'll see you there. And I remember asking him about it and he was like, I knew you were going to be good. He goes, I've seen so many shitty players. Like he goes, I knew you were going to be a player. I could see it in guys' eyes. And I'll I like, tell you, I called, I called ESPN the day after he died and I said, we need to make a documentary about this guy. He went to USC. I know all about him. You know, I have access to his family. Like we, we should do a documentary about him because I said he killed himself because of the brain injuries in the NFL. And the people from ESPN were like, well, first of all, it's too soon. And second of all, we don't do those kind of documentaries. Like, do you know why? We don't, we don't, we don't make assumptions about things. Like, yeah, because you guys represent the NFL. <laughs> well, no, the it, NFL owns ESPN. I mean, yeah, they, and, I mean and, yeah, it's, ABC, yeah. yeah, I mean, they, they own, like, look at the, uh, uh, you know, the games televised. I mean, if you go back and you follow the money trail, like ESPN is pretty much a subsidiary of the, I mean, it is a subsidiary of the NFL. I'm probably locking myself out from ESPN forever for saying this. But I have pitched at least 20 movies to ESPN. They've turned down every single one of them. Every single one of them is fucking awesome. Like beyond, like dude, blow away fucking 30 for 30 garbage. I'm telling you, like they don't, they don't go deep in those because they're fucking scared. They're well, yeah, scared they of what's be, out there. Yeah. They're scared of what's really going on in sports. Yeah. They're scared of what's really going on in drugs. There's people like Vice that are out there covering this shit. And yeah. ESPN is going to lie in the wake of what happens when you know, real news about these sports issues starts coming out in other places and people well, start really talking you about know, it. Uh, people think athletes are healthy and they're not. Like that's well, the problem is well, like I mean, they so, are damaged goods a lot of times and well, need help and we're not helping them. You know? But I mean, it, you, it's, it's kind of the toy soldier thing, man. Like you, you know, you buy your you know, shiny toy soldier, you play with them and when he gets a ding and a dent, you throw him in the trash and you go get a new tiny soldier. Sure. And like, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, and that's what's interesting with the NFL is that there's just this renewable pool of kids uh, to come through. I mean, and it's like, you know, they pay, Remember, like, they pay what they pay. Were, I don't know if you guys had this when you were a kid, but I'm a nerd. So I had uh, wrestling action figures, right? Oh, yeah. uh, there were like these little plastic toys and you know you used to have uh there was ones that wwe made that were like this giant rubber rubberized figure but then you had these other ones that were from like the nwa and awa and you could like literally like rip their heads right off and put a different head on and that's what i used to say like vince mcmahon used to do like it's like when one wrestler you know dies it's like okay we'll just replace them with the next guy mm -hmm. and that's what the nfl does and that's what all these places do the WWE actually has made a, a vast improvement in what they do through putting Triple H in charge of their wellness program. They actually do a lot of testing for opiates. They do testing for steroids, which I don't know if the steroid testing is it's accurate. Is, uh, <laughs> well, I don't. I don't think it's actually necessary. I don't. I don't think that. Um, you know, look if if somebody has a problem and you know they they look ridiculous or something, they look like they're gonna die. Maybe go. Maybe test them for for steroids or something. But like. When your job is to look good, I don't think that that should be on, you know, on the thing. But, right. you know, it's, it's because it's a publicly traded company. But I do believe what they did with the um, opiates is, is a step in the right direction. 
And also, just like the NFL, they're doing it because they're coming under pressure yeah. and they're getting sued. You know, two of my so Chris, really, what really, they doing if they if they test and they find uh, test positive in the, in the if day? they test positive for um, opiates, they will they will get fined and they will get taken off the road. If they get tested uh, tested positive for uh, marijuana, usually the guys just pay it. I don't know if that's uh, less like lightened up. I know, like for example, Rob Van Dam, he would just get like the marijuana is just a fine. So he was just like, here's 25 grand. Just keep, uh, you know, yeah. put it on my tab every time I get caught. So on the opiate and, side, um, they didn't, they don't couple it with treatment or anything? Uh, opiate side, they definitely couple it with treatment. Um, I've had friends that have been out of the WWE for over 10 years and have they got, they've gone to treatment for free uh, because the WWE is paying for it. So I, yeah, I've seen yeah. a lot of, um, a lot of treatment. Uh, most of the time what happens is like a guy will get caught and they know, they know what they're doing is wrong and, They'll pull them off the road and they usually like learn their lesson. They go back to, you know, they'll get tested again. They'll never do it again. And that's, that's most cases. Um, but, you know, we've seen because of the past, there was a huge problem where, you know, people, people were taking these pills like crazy. You know, my brother, Mad Dog, used to get booked on shows just because he would show up with a ton of drugs. So they knew the wrestlers knew that. So they always, Hey, get Mike on the show, you know? And uh, it wasn't the only reason that he was picked. He was, he was great at what he did, but also when you have, somebody who you know is going to show up with the pills, you're going to make sure that they're on the road with you. Wow. Chris, did you study filmmaking at USC or is just something that passion led to this? You had to get a message out to help folks. Uh, you know, I went to uh, USC specifically for film. So I was actually in a community college. I, I went to um, high school in upstate New York. I grew up in Poughkeepsie. There's not really a whole lot going on there. And after uh, leaving high school, like, you know, getting out of high school and everything, uh, my dad, basically gave me the worst decision that a father could ever give a son. It's like, Hey, either go to a community college cause your grades suck or go get a job working for the city as like a trash man, a post, you know, post office worker, all these things, which are fine. But like, that wasn't anywhere near like any goal that I had, you know, and at the time I was into like lifting and all this stuff. I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I took the option of going to the community college. And I took a communications course. And I, I just knew that there was hot chicks in communications. I didn't really know anything about it. It was, like the dumbest, it, it was the dumbest thing to take. So I just took it, right? So I was like, took communications. And they said, okay, you have to do a, a radio commercial, just like you guys used to know doing that. And I had the mixing board with the echo, right? Lucky. And they said, Genius. okay, you have, to do, you have to do a commercial for the radio. So at the time, Evander Holyfield was fighting Mike Tyson. And I just did this like grandiose, like ding, 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 ladies and gentlemen. You know, like I did this whole commercial for this giant event coming up. And my teacher was like, oh my God, this is fucking crazy. There's like crowd <laughs> in the background and, you know, <laughs> the bells are ringing and fucking Tyson's voice is coming in. And, you know, it's just like all badass. So my teacher's like, like, you understand that this shit's at a different level than all these other kids, right? And I'm like, well, I just want it to be good. I just want, you know, I want to get a good grade. And she's like, no, your shit's like, it's different, you know? So um, I didn't really know what that meant. And then I went to a video class, like, you know, the next semester and I made a music video. And my teacher said, your, your stuff is different. There's something about it. I don't know what the fuck it is, it's, it's different. And so I, I, didn't, I didn't know what that meant either. And um, he said, you need to enter this in this contest. So I entered my uh, music video into a contest and it won first place out of like 800 other, other music videos that were all shot on like film and, you know, expensive cameras. I shot mine on a VHS camcorder and because it was creative and in inventive, it was like rapping cowboys basically <laughs> back before kid rock ever said he wanted to be a cowboy. <laughs> my, friends, my, my friends from Poughkeepsie rapped and they were actually really good. 
and um, they were funny. And so we made a video for it and that won. And when I got to California, uh, the, the woman who was running the contest, I still remember her name, it was Lee Briggs. This is over 20 years ago. Lee Briggs said to me, Christopher, you have so much talent. You won this contest hands down, you beat everybody. It probably doesn't mean shit coming from me, but Francis Ford Coppola saw your video and said, that's the winner right there. And that, that was the moment where I knew shit, like, okay, some, something's going on here. Like Francis Ford Coppola, like, my, like how did he even see my video? You know, like, I don't even know. And then- um, You're like the godfather? So she said, you should go to USC. That would, be, that would be the place to go. It's the best film school in the country. She's like, either there, NYU. So I applied to USC, I applied to NYU, and I applied to Loyola Marymount, and that's out here in California. And there was only like three schools, four schools at the time that had film programs. And there were Columbia- Loyola, USC, and NYU. All the rest were just like programs. They weren't full-on film schools. And I wanted to go to a place that had actual like, uh, film school. I could learn all everything I needed to learn. Um, so ironically, I, I didn't get into NYU because it was right down the road. I got into USC. So I chose you know, to go to USC. And when I got to USC and I made my first film, my teacher said the same exact thing. He said, well, um, your shit's different. You know, like you have a calling here, you have a stamp. And when Chris Bell makes a movie, it's like you put a stamp on it, you know? And so I always just like carried that with me. I always remembered that. And I went through a, a course of about, you know, 10, like probably about 10 years after I graduated from film school. My father always told me it'll take you 10 years. Like when I graduated high school, he said, listen, so first, the only time my dad ever gave me any sort of like real advice on anything, he said, whatever you want to do in life, it's out there for you. However, it's going to take you 10 years to do it. From the day that my dad said that to the day I was standing on a stage at Sundance Film Festival with my movie was exactly 10 years. Like, it's like almost exactly. Because I actually went to school. I went to school in December, right? I went, I went a semester, like the, the, the second semester. And so I went, to, I left for school in December. And that was in January, exactly 10 years later. So my dad's like a prophet or something. I don't know. But anyway, maybe it's uh, his, his tight uh, relationship with God. But, you know, it's just really interesting because, you know, it was 10 years of struggle. It wasn't like a 10 year, like, oh yeah, this was the course, you know, but it's like that whole 10,000 hours thing. It was like, I needed to get beat up before I made bigger, stronger, faster. I needed to be a little bit older, a little bit more mature. I needed to have more shit going on in my life. I needed to see more and do more before I made that movie. And I think the same was true with, uh, prescription thugs or any of the stuff that I'm making. It's all happening now because it needs to happen now. Well, I guess with that said, I mean, John, it, long, long spiel. It, <laughs> no, no, dude. It's, you uh, know, one, one reason we I want mean, to have you, you definitely on. have the gift of the gab. So, I mean, like, and, and selfishly, I mean, I sit back and like, it's always nice to, uh, uh, you know, to be a fan and like, you know, hear a little bit inside. I mean, the, uh, the idea for, uh, you know, bigger, faster, stronger. I mean, like you were saying, people were like, Oh, I had this idea. And you're like, no, you fucking didn't. Well, but, they could have had the idea. I don't discount that people had the idea. I just doubt that. Like, I, anybody I else could have made the movie. I say this right now. I have an idea for, for a show. And my friend said, don't tell anybody. I said, dude, I'll tell everybody. I'll put it on the internet. I'll post that shit on Instagram and somebody still won't make what I make because they're not fucking me. Sure. And if people don't have that kind of confidence, then like get out of the business, go do something else. And you should have that kind of confidence with anything, with your training. Like you're, you're going to like, oh, I'm going to write a book. So I'm going to hide this training technique from everybody. And nobody can, nah, it's like, no, nah, it doesn't, that doesn't shit don't fucking, work, man. But I mean, it doesn't like, work. Right. So, so I mean, think about how impactful like pumping iron was. I mean, like, you, you know, we're of similar age and like that movie to me and me seeing that movie, like that's what wanted, like 
I remember seeing pumping iron and thinking to myself, I want to lift weights. Like that was yeah. like a, a pretty impactful for me. And I remember, you know, that whole kind of deal. I mean, for, you know, and I know they, they've come out with like generation iron and some of these other things, but I think what was nice and really kicked ass with your movie, it was, it was, it was like actually showed both sides of it. Just didn't show the glamor. I mean, you, you know, you open yeah. up with the scene who, with the dude who was in uh, uh, over the top and he's like living there and he's like, you know, sunshine and I'm still going to make it. Yeah, yeah. And you see like fucking dudes delusional. But like, well, by that's... the way, it's still shining. I just saw him <laughs> this morning. He's still training, and he's training. To, he he thinks that eventually he's going to fight uh, Floyd Mayweather. He that's what he's training for. So he's got his weight all the way down. And he's fucking ripped now, and he's like, you know, he he's convinced in his head. So if you think he's delusional, you're the delusional one. He's going to fight <laughs> Floyd Mayweather right after Conor McGregor fights him. I, I swear. Uh dude. But I mean, like, just opening up and then going through it and really showing it, like, it's uh, it was like to me to me that guy in the van wasn't to make fun of him at all and i hope nobody ever takes it that way the guy in the van was to represent somebody who has given their all to the uh to the health and fitness business and the only real um mistake that he made was just like letting it blind him so much and i didn't want to make that same mistake you know i don't want to be the guy who's like you know 58 years old standing out front of gold saying i could have been a contender i could have been somebody I wanted to do something. I was like, why am I not here? Like, so for example, all the steroids in the world, how tall are you, John? Uh, six, six. Yeah, huge, right? So like all the steroids in the world aren't going to make me as big as you. They're not going to make, like, they're not going to make my arms as big as yours. <laughs> they're not going to, like, not, like, it doesn't matter. Well, I, I mean, do everything in the world and I'm not going to be well, as big as you. That's the same and thing so, in the NFL. Like uh, maybe people are like, oh, those guys take drugs. And I'm like, dude, honestly, I'll buy you every steroid. I'll buy you every drug you want and you won't even get a sniff. I mean, it just doesn't happen. I mean, it's like for the pro bodybuilding. Like I remember yeah. uh, Mark Ripto and I had a conversation about it once and he, uh, he, he was telling me, he, he basically was like talking about these two uh, uh, guys that he knew that were Texas power lifters. And he was telling me like, Hey, this is what these guys took over the course of about 10 weeks. And it was like, they were taking like a gram of test a day and a handful of this and going through all the shit. And I was like, man, that's crazy. And I was like, who were they? And he told me their names. I'm like, I've never heard of them. He goes, no, nobody else has ever either uh, heard of them either. He's like, they, you know, they weren't Doug Young. They weren't these other guys. He goes, all the drugs in the world, uh, you know, aren't going to make people who they are if they're not, in that position, you know, you know, I, I went to USC, so I was around it a lot. And, um, and I, I don't, I'm not, I don't mean steroids. I was around football a lot, actually. And, um, I actually was in an exercise science class with like half the football team. I, I knew everybody on the team at the time and we were all friends and everything. I actually outbenched everybody on the football team that year. I think I did 470 in the, in the what year was this? Game. What year 90, was this? Uh, 95, 96 in that era. Okay. I was powerlifting back then. And so, um, I, I beat everybody on the football team that year. They were all pissed. Uh, but one of my best friends, I won't actually mention his name, one of my best friends and I had an anthropology project. And for the anthropology pro project, we went down to Mexico. And he bought so much juice, and he's like a third string guy, you know? And uh, my, you know, I, I had this other friend who was a first string guy. Uh, he was a, all, a scholastic all American, you know, like whatever, like all American. So you got like a 4.0. And he was big and strong and he went to the NFL. And I know for a fact that this guy didn't know shit about steroids because he didn't even know what protein was barely. So, you know, that, you have those guys. They're just these freaks out there. And then, you know, a lot of people want to say like everybody in NFL is on the juice. And I don't necessarily believe that. You might know more than I do. I don't believe everybody is. I believe either you're just a, like a freaky freak freak or you're, you know, 
probably taken something. But we've no, seen a lot of freaky, freaky people that are that are drug free. You know? Yeah, it's uh, uh, it's genetics. I mean, I like like I think back in at a, I agree with I, I would agree with point that. in the I've NFL. Like like I, I think guys could drug their way into it. Like you know maybe like in the seventies or the eighties when that got real big, and then all of a sudden it like it switched. And I remember seeing you know, dudes walk in. I mean, I, I still tell the story. I mean, I, I trained the whole off season. And I benched like, you know, five and a quarter for like a triple or something. And I walked in and I watched a dude, you know, basically went and lifted weights in six months, put like five fifty five on the bar and do it for like six reps in like under four seconds. And he yeah. like put it up and he was like, what do you well, think? And I was like, fuck. I'll give, you, I'll give you a good example. My friend that I went to Mexico with who bought a ton of steroids could grab me um, underneath the armpits because I'm five, six and he could lift me up like a baby. Like you could probably do the same thing. And I was like 240 at the time. He, he could, he like, so no matter how strong I was, I could out bench him by like 10 pounds. This guy would fucking throw me across a room. You know what I mean? So it's like to, to say like, Oh, I, I out benched him. Like that's all I had on him. You know what I mean? Right. He was faster. He was bigger. He was better looking. He got laid more. He made more money. But I could bench more than him. So I, that's all I held above him. So I thought it was cool. But you know that, I think that's like what you, to your point, I think, you know, the genetics play such a huge role in athletic ability and that we can't really begin to even tap into it. You know, when you have guys like Jesse Norris that weigh 198 pounds, deadlifting, you know, 850. My, my favorite uh, power lifter, I have to mention his name, is uh, this kid named Jeremy Avila, who you guys probably never heard of. Jeremy Avila, uh, three and a half, four years ago maybe, was slamming heroin in his arm for – a good like five or six years he was a heroin addict and i just saw him deadlift at my brother's gym i think he did 785 for a triple and he just looks like a normal dude he's like you know maybe he's 220 or something like that he is a freak and um you know to see somebody go through all that and be able to come back you know out of it and and be able to deadlift like for him to lift that much weight that's so genetically gifted sure. but like thank god he found that you know, he might be dead in an alley somewhere if he didn't find that strength. But like, he was a guy who um, basically like was a heroin addict who met Jesse Burdick and he had turned his life around uh, and Jesse, Jesse was helping him, training him. And, and Jesse just realized this, like, wow, this kid's got some potential here. And uh, the kid just started blowing away everybody, but like going back to that genetics thing, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, genetics plays a big part. And I think, uh, especially in the NFL today, I mean, you're just seeing genetic freak and it's even risen. Um, you know, I, I mean, I retired, what, like, uh, you know, 2009. And over the course, like, I, I played right at the at the end, the tail end of what I called the old NFL and then played into what I called the new NFL, where, like, there were still dudes, uh, like, the type of guys that were, you know, when I was a rookie, were still, like, the 7, 8, 9, 10-year vets were, like, guys that had, you know, come in in the early 90s and, like, kind of this, you know, where it was – you know, fucking shoot guys up and, and blood and guts. And, and then all of a sudden it became this like kind of different deal. And I saw just a, a strange kind of changing of the guard per se, where, you know, they just kind of got rid of a lot of those old guys, but uh, yeah. no, it's, 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 you read a lot of stories about like the welcome to the NFL stories, you know, like where, you know, we, we might think we know what it's like to be involved in something like that, but like only the guys like you know what it's really like. Cause it's, it's got to be a different world, man. Like I, I, we had a guy uh, at Super Train, Cassius Marsh, who plays for the Seattle Seahawks. My friend Martin is his uh, agent, and he was up at Super Training, and um, he was just talking about all like the veterans and how much of ass kick, like how they're such ass kickers and like how they kill them in practice and all that. And it's like so funny because you know that 
this kid will, in, you know, three, four years, he'll be the veteran. And that uh, those guys will be talking about like, oh, this kid Cassius, he, you know, he's a beast. He does, you know, so he was talking about, you know, all the other guys on the Seahawks that were, were like that and that he looked up to. And, um, you know, now he's on the verge of getting his starting position and all that. And like, that stuff's exciting, you know, and it, it's such a, such a crazy world. I can't even imagine it. No, it was a fun existence and, um, you know, kind of unique in, in that, uh, you know, you meet people and, and it's really, uh, was kind of fascinating, like towards the end of my career when CrossFit approached me about doing some training stuff for him, I was kind of of the mind, like normal people want to know this stuff. Like yeah, I, you know, cause sure. you, you, you live in this bubble, uh, you know, where all your friends are in the NFL, everybody, you know, like you train these special places and you kind of just figure that's what everybody does. And then you get out. I was kind of, I actually thought when I, when I first heard about what you were doing back then with, um, do you still do it by the way? Is it still the same thing? Or is no, it has it, has no, it morphed? no, we morphed it into, uh, into the power athlete. Yeah. So, I mean, power athletes, my company, my brand, and sure. you know, because we didn't own, you know, the CrossFit name. Um, yeah. so there was, well, yeah, that, that's it. That's probably a, yeah. It, well, there, it, it was just a weird branding thing that for a long time was confusing. I mean, cause CrossFit's defined as high intensity or movement or, uh, constantly, yeah, you guys, you constantly guys very movements performed at high intensity. And, uh, you know, here we are teaching a seminar called CrossFit football, which is sports specific where CrossFit's not about sports specific. And then well, it's, we're going out I just need, and we're not teaching. I need, them to tell you, I need to tell you that the CrossFit football idea and the CrossFit kids idea, even if they're not executed like perfectly with CrossFit, the idea of like a sports specific training for football, sports specific training for kids, sports specific training for basketball, all these things are great, you know? And I think that, um, we've, we've seen it evolve. Uh, you know, and we've seen, you know, when I did my movie trophy kids, this is a fine example. Um, you know, it's changing, but we need to embrace it because if we don't embrace it. We get left in the dust. Right. So in, in, um, trophy kids, you like kids start training specifically for sports at very young ages, you know? And if you're, you know, if you're a parent, you're in like a tough world and I'm sure you guys deal with this, like where the parents like, well, I want my kid to play football, but he actually likes this or whatever, you know, but you get in this weird world where you kind of have to choose pretty young you have to make pretty big decisions about like what your kid's going to play pretty young or you can just decide to skip all that like my brother has and his kids don't play anything right now until they sort of find it on their own you know um but those those are tough choices for parents it's like hard for mark to sit back and go like well my kid doesn't want to play basketball like shit i'd like him to you know well he doesn't push it you know we we took the exact opposite approach uh, with power athlete and what I do with my own kids in that uh, I'm not really interested in my kids playing sports as much as I am interested in fostering and developing athleticism. So Perfect. what I did yeah. is I, I sat back and I've, I've realized over, you know, and this is just my looking glass of, you know, playing in the NFL and having worked with all these guys. Uh, the best athletes in the world are always going to be the most successful given all sports. So it, sure. You, yeah. If you can put together, and this is what I've worked on, is this idea, what I call the blueprint of athleticism, that, uh, and really the, the cornerstone of, of the power athlete methodology is this idea of developing athleticism, because we defined it, we looked at it, we figured out how to model it, and we're able to do it. So for my own kids, I sat back and said, all right, what are the, what are the endeavors that I need them to do that are, allow them to become the best athletes they you know, will ever be. And then at which point they can take that athleticism as this commodity and they can focus it and point it at whatever they want to do. Yeah. Cause like running, jumping, lifting, all that stuff doesn't change from sport to sport. Right. Yeah. It doesn't really change. So you're saying you're working on overall athleticism. And what I, what I mean by like sports specific stuff is just like, um, my friend trains uh, basketball kids and he just trains them like he trains them like regu- they do all the regular conditioning uh, training and then he'll do a bunch of jumping stuff with them because they need, they, they need to 
certain kids need to concentrate on, they don't have hops, so they got to, you know, concentrate on that. Other kids don't have agility, so he works agility with them. He just works like, works what people don't have, and that's what I assume that you guys do too. You fill in the gaps of like what somebody doesn't have and make them an overall good athlete, not just a, yeah, so for, so for like my little girls, like uh, uh, swimming, which is like, you know, different orientation, like a different, like a different environment. Uh, so like swimming's important. Uh, they do gymnastics, which is basically moving in, um, you know, like moving in space, uh, you know, and like other little things that we go through, like are all these, you know, and I, and I set things up randomly to like, see what they do. Like we have tire swings and just create different things within the house. Well, it's it's yeah. problem solving, right? And it's, it's mapping over the concept that you put some hard work in, you progress over time, years, maybe uh, it's a long-term goal yep. and that you're going to be faced with problems. It's just fun now. You know well, what I mean? They're little you're, obstacles. You're absolutely right. If you look at things as problem solving, then you're on to something. Dan Duchesne, who was the steroid guru, used to look at everything like that. Like he would say, I'm not a bad guy. I'm just a problem solver. Like, you can't <laughs> lose weight. Here, take this diabetes drug. Try this, try that. You know, and he was putting people, you know, he was, he was solving problems that people had regardless of what it, you yeah. know, what it was. And I think that that's an, that's an important, um, it's, it's just such an important skill to have as a personal trainer, as a coach, you know, anybody, you know, working with athletes or, or being an athlete, just being able to understand that stuff. You know? Well, and where, where people fail too, especially with kids is, um, uh, and, uh, Nicholas Romanoff, who's the guy that, uh, you know, inventor of the pose method. Um, he, he teaches with CrossFit and, and Dr. Romanoff and I, even though we don't subscribe to the pose, uh, I will always count as like a mentor. And whenever I see him, like, I'm I'm so, you know, thankful to be able to spend time with him. I mean, I give him a hug and like, dude, I'm like Doc, rap. And we'll always have like a two hour, two or three hour conversation that ends up setting me on fire in like 20 different things. And I'm like, doc, like I am nervous if I got to see you more than once or twice a year. And I remember the first time I met him, I mean, but he, he made some really interesting, just off the cuff observations. I don't know if this happens to you, but people say things. And then like a week later you're driving down the road and like it, you're replaying a conversation and like the brain bomb goes off and you're like, almost yeah. crash. And he, uh, he made an interesting happens thing. all the time to me, by the way. Dude, it, <laughs> it happens to me too. And he, uh, uh, he made an incredible point to me once where, um, uh, you know, children learn by watching. And they will become a look or uh, they'll become a reflection of you based off of what you do. And like he was talking about for athletic development. So in Russia, because he was a um, you know, Russian sports scientist, Moscow, Eastern Bloc, and he was an Olympic athlete. And so all the Olympic athletes lived in these athlete villages. And the kids grew up in this environment around all the best athletes and they learned, you know, they played games and they went through this whole thing. And, and it's so true. Like you have these parents out there like, Oh, I want my kid to be a pro baseball player as he's sitting there and the, he does no physical activity. So I yeah. get people all, all the time that ask me like, Oh, you know, what's the best thing I can do to get my kid uh, better at something or get them prepared. And I told them, I said, take your fat ass to the gym and get in shape because if they, see, if, if they see you doing it, then they will all of a sudden realize that this becomes the standard, just like our girls. Like they know that mommy and daddy go, go out and do these things. They watch, they see. And all of a sudden, like we were doing um, like pull-ups, for example. And uh, um, I take my girls to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu on Saturday. And um, my daughter who, who does gymnastics. That's awesome. That's awesome, by the way. I like that. I like yeah. So, <laughs> well, well I've, I've told them, uh, my good friend, Todd White, who, uh, who's in, pretty super famous artist, but also one of uh, Jean-Jacques Machado's like original students has a place here in, in, uh, in, in uh, Dripping Springs. So I take him there and like we were jumping, playing around and my daughter jumps up and uh, at five years old, she has five dead hang pull-ups. And like these adults were like flipping the fuck out and they were like, I don't, I, I don't have one. Like, how does she have these? I'm like, cause we work on them all the time. 
and yeah. I'll put her on my fingers and she can do pull-ups and they like, they work this stuff. But I'm like, the kids only know what's important to the parents. And if it's important to the parents enough for them to do it, not just tell them to do it. It's kind of like, Hey, sure. clean your room, but my room's messy. The kids won't clean their fucking room. Yeah. As and, long as it's fun, you know, too, like making yeah. it fun for kids is that's a huge deal. You know, just making things that are, that are fun to do. And like, like jujitsu is fun, you know, like sports like that are fun and they're engaging and, you know, kids can learn um, self-defense, you know, like my girlfriend's like, Oh, I should take a self-defense class. I'm like, yeah, you should. Like, I think that stuff's like, like she's 31 she's not a little kid but like still think that that's that's an awesome thing to learn for anybody plus it just it's more activity and the more activities that we can get good at like look you know we only live once and we might as well learn all the shit that we can like i was just thinking the other day like last night i was thinking well my knee hurts so bad (laughs) and then i'm like well what am i doing about it i'm doing absolutely zero about it so i'm like i better you know like tomorrow when i wake up i need to take steps to like stretch this ice this treat this do whatever because like it's just going to get worse and worse and worse so like have you been using any have have you been using any of the ems units like um the marker Um, those no he hasn't he doesn't hook me up to shit well fuck him uh as soon as we get (laughs) off this i'm going to send you a a, a couple things and uh i i use right now um you know so yeah i i utilize i don't use a, a whole lot of recovery stuff but i've actually um I'm actually just starting to like read a lot more about it and get a lot more well, interested in that. I'm gonna s- actually, I'm going to send some stuff your way. I'm, I'm going to send you stuff. In general, just getting, um, you know, I, I got sober three years ago. Uh, right after I did prescription thugs, I was just popping pills like crazy and doing all stupid shit. And um, three years ago, I got sober. And then, um, you know, about, let's see, like a year ago, two years ago, I lost like about 50 pounds. And the way that I did that was keto, like ketogenic diet. I didn't really tell anybody. I just, you know, I went to the same place every day and I got a grass fed double cheeseburger. And I literally ate at this place, burger lounge every single day. I know burger lounge. Down the street from yeah. I would eat there two or three times a day. I knew all the people that worked there and it's like, yeah, what's up? Yeah, give me another burger. Go ahead. And I just would eat it without the bun. You know? And I did that until I lost like 50 pounds. <laughs> and then for some reason I went for like a year where I just ate whatever I wanted to and just watched my calories. And I didn't gain a pound. I weighed 200 pounds, but I was 200 pounds of a crappy 200 pounds. So um, I was just like, you know what? Why can't I control my eating? Why can't I control the sugar? I was eating so much sugar. I was, just felt bloated and shitty every day. And so I just said, you know what? I'm going to go back on keto, but this time I'm actually going to learn what I'm doing. And I dove in head first. I went to the Metabolics Therapeutics Conference down in uh, Tampa, Florida. I talked to Dominic D'Agostino. I talked to Jimmy Moore. I talked to Patrick Arnold. I talked to like anybody who's anybody in that world of uh, the, the ketogenic diet. And I learned the goods and the bads and the ins and the outs and the ups and the, and the downs of it. And um, just sort of embarked on that and, um, and have stuck with that. And I've, you know, written, I think today I weighed like 182 or something like that. So, I, you know, my weight has come down dramatically uh, with that. Like the number one thing that has happened to me is I was telling you I was taking Kratom for arthritis, but now with the ketogenic diet being strict, it's all, like the inflammation is almost all gone. So if you kill the inflammation, you kill that hormone, uh, NLRP3 or some shit like that, if you, like keto will stop that hormone. That was what the keynote uh, speaker at the Metabolics Therapeutic Conference was there for, was stopping inflammation. It will completely stop inflammation and therefore the body can now heal. Right. So like, that's what I'm trying to do is get, get, so get healthy if, again. If, uh, um, you know, and 
I know a little bit about that plight for uh, just kind of, you know, uh, keeping tabs on you and some of the other conversations we've had, but uh, the idea that, and I always thought this, like um, the, you know, like the addiction, especially, you know, when you run into people and I, it was, it was really interesting for me as an NFL player to see guys like really get hooked on the pills. And I always thought like something, you know, whether it be brain injury or something chemically happened that all of a sudden now like this dependency kind of became, and I don't know if it was emotional, physical, chemical, or all three mixed together, but I wonder if uh, the ketogenic diet, which is, you know, has been used for hundreds of years for people to like fix, ep- yeah. uh, fix e- epilepsy. Like we had, um, um, you know, from the, uh, um, uh, who was it? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, uh, Abrams, uh, uh, from the Charlie foundation. Oh yeah. Jim Abrams. Yeah. 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 We, yeah. we had him on our podcast, which was, he's great. Yeah. Which was amazing until we realized Jim. that, that he had made, uh, uh, Fletch and also airplane. Yeah. That was like 90 minutes in as, as Jim. we were like, this is great. And then we were like, Oh my God, you made airplane. Are you Yeah, Jim kidding? Abrahams. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's like, um, me and my brother's hero. And so, you know, yeah. I, I'm actually going to do my next film that I, I might as well announce it right here. My next film, I haven't announced it anywhere, and I haven't really told m- many people unless you know me, but I'm actually doing a movie on keto. Oh, no shit. Um, oh, shit. That'll be called Keto Therapy, and Keto Therapy encompasses uh, all these different therapies and modalities for disease. So when I went to this metabolic therapeutics conference, like epilepsy, MS, PTSD, ALS, CTE, you can name any disease that has to do with like your brain or your metabolism, and ketogenic diet can improve it, right? So yeah, I know yeah. all these people are out there going like, ah, he's full of shit. It doesn't, it, it fits your macros. And, and people can argue nutrition all the time. I am not interested in that. All I'm interested in is for myself. And I know mm-hmm. it works for me. And so I'm following uh, that plan. I'm also right now reading Rob Wolf's book called Wired to Eat, which is yes. amazing. I'm just trying to pull it all in. You know, like, like how can we, how can we know uh, what the best diet is if we haven't read every diet book? So I've read, you know, like I've read the paleo books. I've like my, my real foundation in nutrition comes from working with all the pro bodybuilding coaches at Gold's Venice. Like, so I know, you know, I, I know what the bodybuilders do. I know what, uh, for me, a bodybuilding diet is just simply too difficult because of the sugar crashes because yeah. you're up here and then you're down here and up here and you're down here. And I can't do that. Like I need more, I'm going to need a more consistent. Well, and that's a lot of people can't mean, pull that. But off. I mean, uh, we just, you know, I've known geez, uh, Rob for just ever. I mean, we just had him on our podcast uh, last week. And um, the thing which, you know, we've always gone back to is it's, you can look at all these different dietary approaches, whether it be, you know, paleo, keto, all these other things. At the end of the day, the base the building block of them all is food quality. Like the yeah, people, exactly. nutrient the density, the people, yeah, nutrient density, the it's people that the same, eat, right? yeah, well, the people that eat a more, uh, one ingredient, you know, more basic, uh, you know, and I hate to say like real food, but like this idea of like a simpler, you know, whole food, nutrient dense diet will always be healthier regardless of how you want to skin yeah. your macros. And like, if you, I, eat, if you eat broccoli, chicken and avocados, like you're going to be fucking healthy. But yeah, I mean, I've yeah. seen more variety than that, but if those are the kinds of things that you're eating, you're going to be you're going to be fairly healthy. There's yeah. No, you got to, you really got to no cover the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and like, you know, and that was kind of where I, I, I get a little sideways with, uh, you know, like I, I don't really give a shit like, cause everybody genetically is going to be able to handle a different macronutrient ratio. Like certain people are less in, or more efficient with carbohydrates. Some people can handle fat a little bit better and we can do some genetic testing and figure that stuff out all day. But at the I, end I, of the day, no, there's no genetic testing for, uh, for garbage can or for just like crappy food. Yeah. Vending term, machine diet. Yeah, yeah. Like a vending machine okay. diet opposed from, you know, I can look at somebody like you and I can see that you're jacked and I can see like, 
Okay, John, what do you, what's your Oh, goal? you're talking to John. I thought you were talking <laughs> uh, to me. I was talking to you guys on the side. So, so like, if I look at, if, if say John came in, I'd be like, dude, what do you want? Like, like, first of all, people do that. They'll come up, they'll be John's size. and be like, how do I get big, dude? And I'm like, come on, man. You're like twice my size. Like people ask me how to get big and how to get ripped that are way more ripped than me and way bigger than me all the time. <laughs> Every day they think I have some fucking secret. And, um, it happens all the time. So, but what I'm saying is like, I can look at you and be like, well, what's your goal? You're like, I just want to get stronger, you know, for football, whatever it is. So like, but I can look at you and go like, well, you don't need to lose a lot of body fat. Do you like, well, you need, what, what, do you, what is your goal? Right. So like, for example, my girlfriend's on keto also, but she's 125 pounds. So her goal is to get down to like 120. So it's like mm -hmm. a five, you know, it's like a little shift in weight loss, but for her, she's dyslexic and learning disabled. So for her, this ketogenic diet helps sharpen her mind there you go. a it's lot pretty, better than anything else. It's has. pretty amazing. Like when you get into like, um, uh, like a ketogenic state, cause like, um, I do this deal, which is kind of a cyclical, like where I try to periodize sure. my diet. And so like, I'll eat like a, you know, I'll eat carbs. And so right now I'm in like the, the keto part of my, uh, um, phase of the year. And the, uh, the amount, like when you're actually in that keto phase and you know, like, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty good, like with the blood testing, but also I know when I'm there just based off of like, not only the you fact that it, it well, a little bit, yeah. well, yeah, it tastes like I've been sucking on pennies, but also uh, I can feel it like I'm way more lucid and all of a sudden like hyper-focused on things. And, um, I could see where, uh, if you had some form of like issue, whether it be ADD or maybe, you know, dyslexia or some of the things where maybe your brain chemistry wasn't, uh, dead on, I could see where, you know, the ketogenic, cause I, I know for me when I retired from the NFL, like I was like, man, I wonder if I'm having some problems. And it was actually Matt Lalonde, who uh, is a doctor of organic chemistry at Harvard, who, you know, is a good friend of Rob Wolf and I, and I, I hit up Matt and I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm wondering about this brain stuff. And he actually pulled like, you know, 10,000 research articles and sent his team of monkeys to, to do all this research. And he called me up and he's like, dude, ketogenic diet, don't eat any carbs. And he, he sent me a, a macronutrient <laughs> ratio for one year. I didn't eat like any carbohydrate. And I remember I got to the end of the year and I crashed through and I, uh, it was like, I came out of this fog. And I tell people all the time, I'm like, if you can do it and you can survive it, because a lot of people don't have the, the mental like fortitude. Three, if you can do it for three months, you'll get into that zone. I mean, a couple yeah. of months to get in that zone. You know? If you can get into it for a year, you will come out of the fog. And um, I've met tons of NFL players and guys with traumatic brain injury and different things. And I tell them, I'm like, dude, if you can do it, you will come out the other side and you will feel fucking on point. And it's just yeah. the problem is a lot of people physically cannot not not eat carbohydrate I, I think um i think in this film that i do we should definitely talk about it we should we should get some of these guys in there you know i, I, I would i would totally be down to find people you know like i'm not in the guinea pig and anybody especially with stuff like that but i'm totally into like somebody willing to do it and willing to take that you know say well, like, Dude, I'm, I'll, tr I'll try it let's go and then we'll, well film it. We'll i'm totally it. i would totally love to talk about uh my experience because um i went to the amen clinic and when i got tested they told me that i had some brain injury from playing in the nfl I did that ketogenic diet for a year, uh, went back for a redeal and they couldn't find the brain injury. If you and look so, on, um, I have, I have a, a YouTube channel called keto strong that we just started. I started with my girlfriend and we have a video on there. Um, it's one of the ones about cancer and it's, um, there's only like 10 videos on there. You can find it's this kid, uh, Christopher Morquant. And he was walking around this metabolic therapeutic conference with like a concave hole in the side of his head. And I just knew. Like he's one, you know, like he had a big scar and a, and a concave like hole in his head and he wasn't covering it up with a hat or nothing. He was just like, boom, there's my scar. I'm, I'm wearing it. I'm proud. And I walked up to him and I said, I need to hear your story. I have no idea what it is, but I need to hear it. And he's like, do you have like, 
you have like 20 minutes? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. And I was filming it. And he tells me his story and he was about to get married and he had, he found out that he had stage four brain cancer about a couple months before he was going to get married. And his wife said, um, he said, you know, he came he told her and he said, you can't marry me. This isn't going to work out. You know, I have brain cancer. I'm going to die. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be short and sweet. And this is fucking terrible. And his wife said, you're stupid. I'm marrying you no matter what. If you die, you die. That's that's the chance we take. But we're gonna get we're gonna get through this, which is awesome, by the way. And um, his wife said, "I've been doing some research, and I found this guy who had epilepsy, and he cured it with a ketogenic diet." And the guy's like, "Well, look, I got stage four brain cancer. Like, <laughs> this is completely different than epilepsy." She's like, "I know, but you're having seizures and blah blah." So this guy decided to give it a shot. Three years later, he's down from three hundred and thirty pounds down to about one hundred eighty pounds. His brain cancer is completely, completely gone. They cut it out, first of all, they cut it out, and then the second part of the process is the ketogenic diet will kill all of the remaining cancer without chemotherapy and hard drugs that will kill the person. And uh, also, this guy is like, you know, he's now happily married and and waiting for his first kid to arrive, which is just crazy. Like I, I couldn't, when I was talking to the guy and I left, I cried for like 10 minutes straight. And it was just like, why, like, I was like, God, why am I so lucky? Like, I get choked up talking about it. Like, why am I so lucky that I have it so easy and this guy had to go through all that shit, you know? Right. And so when you see that kind of stuff and you you listen to people on the internet say, you know what, dude, that's bullshit. You can't cure keto. You can't cure keto with a fucking diet. And what I say to those people is, look, I found a guy and then I walked 10 feet and I found another guy and I walked another 10 feet and I found another guy and I walked another 10 feet and I found another guy, four people at the same conference, four brain cancer patients, all healed, all doing great. Now, I don't know if they're going to, you know, like, I don't know how long they're going to, they're going to go on after this. I don't know, but look right now they don't have this deadly disease. And my, my aunt had just died from it uh, like two weeks before I went to that conference. So for me, that just like hit me in the heart. And I was like, you know what? This shit has to be a movie. This isn't about losing weight. This is about saving the world. You know, right. Completely and, do, you know, you're picking a fight with, like, uh, the, the, some pretty big machines out there, one with the Kratom and the, the pharmaceuticals. And I think the only – the sugar companies are just as big, man. I mean, CrossFit's fighting the good fight. But that's ultimately when we're talking about reducing the carbs and the carbs are problematic or really the yeah, processed but, refined. But here's the, here's the issue. Like um, – you know, and I'm, and saying, I'm all I've, for the fight. Well, just letting well, you know, like, Chris. Like, there's no such thing as really good and bad foods. I just think, like, yeah, they, yeah. based yeah, off of you, is it, well, like, it, like bad. eating is bad. Well, well, it's bad. yeah. I mean, like, 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 people are like, oh, it's bad food, good food, and I'm like, well, that really depends on you as an individual. Like, there's certain things that people can eat that we know create, you know, low levels, you know, systemic inflammation, and you know, we've known that from dealing with Dr. Tom is that certain people react to certain things based on you know gut health, uh, you know, how your body necessarily reacts. Certain people, I believe, are designed to run uh, a little lower on, um, you know, different macronutrients and people are set up in different positions. And it's like there's no one size fits all. And the thing that fucking kills me is we've gone and created this, uh, you know, almost like the USDA recommended foods that everybody should eat. And, 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 And it's impossible to say that you as an individual. And so like, if you put somebody into that standard diet and all of a sudden they get cancer, they have all these problems. And then all of a sudden you switch them and you get them into a situation that's more advantageous for them and they heal. Like, you know, it's just, 
like I'm just so tired of people painting everything with a broad brushstroke and then people yeah. instantly decrediting it. Like, like you have D, uh, Dom Diego Agostino who's doing all this fucking incredible keto research. And he was on uh, Tim Ferriss's show and which was about four hours long. But, uh, and I listened to it fucking, which was terrible to listen to a podcast that long. But was uh, that just the one where he was just talking or was it? With no, Tim? no, it was Tim and Tim was kind of pumping him for some good information. But, um, uh, like Tim made a point. He was like, and, this was probably the best part of the show. I think it was like two hours and 37 minutes. And if you ever want to listen to it, he asked him, yeah. he was like, if you, if you got cancer, what would you do? And like Dom kind of got quiet and he was like, here's what I would do. And he basically went through and he's like, I do a ketogenic diet. I would fast. And he goes, basically, we know that if you put like, you know, a starving environment for, you know, the majority of cancers survive off of sugar. So if you remove yep. sugar and you involve some type of fasting, he's like, I would do uh, you know, X amount of fasting and I would basically just fast and I would do ketogenic. And he kind of went through and like laid this almost this blueprint. And I'm like, dude, here's one of the smartest dudes out there for in terms of ketogenic cancer research. And this is his game plan if something went bad for him. And he's like, I don't recommend this for everybody. This is just personally what I would do. And uh, I and it's also a starting point, right? Because it's free. It's accessible. There's a lot of research that backs it. He believes in it. And if it didn't work, I'm sure he'd pull some fucking levers. Well, well, Dominic, Dominic D'Agostino, hopefully. I mean, we've been talking a lot. Um, I hope Dominic D'Agostino is sort of like the feature of this movie. Um, I feel like out of everybody that I've talked to, he has the most uh, information the most good information, the most solid information, the most well-backed information. And what I like about Dominic over everybody else in this uh, world is that he's a true scientist. Yeah. He's well, he's, he's doing to, the research. He's not trying to come out with an answer. And I, and like, even, even I do that, like I, in a documentary, I'm like, well, I want like, you know, we, we think about it early on. We're like, well, what if, what if Smelly goes back on steroids and then he doesn't win the competition? You know, like we, like, so, we think about people's lives in the form of characters and it's weird because we're, we're expecting an outcome and without that outcome doesn't happen for your movie. It's always like a weird <laughs> thing to accept, you know, like it's always a hard thing to accept. Like, well shit, now we don't have a movie, you know, or, you know, there was a point in um, bigger, stronger, faster. I, I got a great story about bigger, stronger, faster. The point in bigger, stronger, faster, where I'm sitting on the couch with Mark. This is way before he was a meathead millionaire before he had any money or was doing anything cool. He was just a power lifter, with, you know, married with a, with a baby. Um, Jake was only like, a, like just one years old, one or two or something like that. I'm sitting on the couch with Mark and, I'm, and I say, so when, when did you, like it was just like getting into the meat of the interview, like we had just started. And I'm like, okay, so tell me like what the decision was like to use steroids. And right when I said that, Andy, his wife talked to me there and she heard me ask him and then she heard Mark answer. And... I've never seen her like this ever. She ran out of the house crying. And then Mark's like, oh my God, hold on a second. I don't know what's going on. And so I was like, well, what's the matter? And he's like, um, I didn't, I never told my wife what this movie was about. Oh, and I gosh. think maybe we need to have that conversation. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. So I actually, so I said, look, I'm, I had my whole crew there. I'm like, I'm leaving right now. You got to fix what's going on with your family. Right. And I got in the car and my crew started going like, well, we don't have a movie now. But I said, listen, shut the fuck up. Like, this is the only time I ever got mad on that whole movie. So that's my brother that you're talking about. And I don't mm -hmm. care if we don't have a movie. We have to do what's right by him. And if he can't say anything, then he can't say anything. And I went back over there later on. And I said, Andy, can I talk to you? And I said, what's the matter? And she said, I just don't want people thinking he's a bad person. If I could just talk about him, you don't have to use it. But if you just give me an opportunity to let people know that he's not a bad person and he doesn't beat me up or beat our kid, 
then I'll let him talk about whatever he wants. I just need, I just need the peace of mind to be able to say that so I can explain it to my family when they ask me. Yeah. And I said, Andy, we would love to have you in the movie. And she said the best thing in the entire movie. She throws the Ben Affleck clip out of nowhere. So she came in huge after being completely out, you know? Um, but it's just like, you know, I, I tell that story because like I said, if you're a scientist or a filmmaker or a trainer or whatever, and you expect an outcome and you don't get it, uh, how do you roll with the punches? What are you going to do? You know, mm-hmm. if, if, if it doesn't work out. And I think that having those backup plans and, and thinking those things through and thinking of what's really important is always important. You know, so I, I'm always, I'm always trying to think one or two steps ahead of everybody else. Yeah? We, we also have another uh, female researcher that we've connected uh, for pediatric cancer in keto. So okay. we, we yeah. tried to fund a study, got shut down well, by the FDA. Yeah, I, I don't know if you know this, but uh, we started a, uh, a nonprofit called Wade's Army a couple, you know, four or five years ago uh, in memory mm-hmm. of a little boy, Wade DeBrun, who passed away um, from neuroblastoma. Wade was uh, the son of my wife's best friend growing up, and mm-hmm. she had um, uh, twins, and her little boy, you know, boy and a girl twin, the little boy ended up passing away from neuroblastoma like 18 months. And, uh, I remember my wife, you know, at the time was pregnant with our twins and it was this you know, huge deal. And I remember, um, her being like, is there something we can do after he passed away? And I was like, let's try to raise some money. So mm-hmm. with the help of these monkeys that you see sitting here, I designed yep. a God awful t-shirt and uh, yes, we just, we literally just sold them, uh, yes. via the CrossFit football stuff. And we made like 18 grand that first year and we raised over 125 last year. And, uh, awesome. and we donate one, money for one, I'm sorry, one fifty for cancer research. And we've been trying to fund a study on ketogenic diets for these kids because the problem is, is that, you know, they're such small little organisms that when they mm-hmm. go in, that the chemotherapies and the drugs they give them are so powerful that the kids end up dying from just the treatments. Yeah. And so, before, yeah. so we've been trying to get them to do a study where they actually uh, dramatically reduce the amount and they start using ketogenic diets as a way to supplement and try to help these kids. And so that's the background on that. Okay, I should on, say, like, I don't, I don't think the ketogenic diet's the absolute answer. I know that you have to get rid of glutamine too. Mm-hmm. I know that get, getting rid of glutamine is going to require a drug, most likely. This is coming from Thomas Seafried, who's like the top dude. I'm like, he wrote the book Cancer as a Metabolic Disease. Uh, he said you have to get rid of uh, glutamine, and there's also something going on with gluto glutathione and i'm not an expert in any of yeah, this it's, uh, yeah, and, and when, when when glutathione is low um so if if glutathione is high in the body cancer and really nothing exists and then as we age glutathione goes slow but it's really hard because they can inject it they can do ivs so i mean there's constantly ways they're trying to su- constantly supplement glutathione but your body's production of glutathione is obviously the most beneficial way and john isn't there like i mean there is a difference between a therapeutic ketogenic diet where you're monitoring different metabolic measurements and just a guy like Chris, who's like, Hey, I'm going to go keto. I'm going to you know, do my best to hit this ratio of carbs and fat. And I just want to be healthy, lose weight, have some mental clarity. Right. I mean, cause that's one thing that Abrams had talked about or Abrahams uh, talked Jim, about yeah. when we were talking about the Charlie foundation. He's like, listen, th- like don't conf- like there's, there's kind of, it's, it's a little different because in, in, as they're the monitoring process during the, the metabolic therapy is different than just like us. Well, it, it's like a, to, to really monitor the, the ketogenic stuff, you have to do, you know, blood testing. Like you, like, like the keto strips where they pee on aren't really accurate cause it's measuring, it's measuring ammonia. So you have to be able to do it. You have to, it's similar to doing like blood glucose testing. You need to know like what you wake up at, you know, how you are and you have to be able to try to keep and you kind of, you kind of fine tune it. The urine strips are actually uh, accurate if you cheat on your diet like most people do. <laughs> so they're, ac- they're accurate for about a month, they say. 
Um, but if you stay in ketosis, like I do, like I'll pee on it right now and it'll be, you know, it'll just be white. It won't, it'll be the same. Um, but yeah, they, they, they do work for about a month. So like, if you, if you're just starting out, like I always tell people, if you're just starting out and you want to know if you're, you know, mildly producing ketones for 11 bucks, you can go get those strips. Um, testing your blood is going to be the most accurate. And then the second most accurate is, uh, testing your breath ketones, which you can do with a thing called the, uh, ketonics. I actually have the thing for it right here. The ketonics is a um, like a breath meter. You just, it looks like a, everybody always thinks it's a vaporizer, but you just blow into it and it turns colors and tells you if you're in ketosis or not. And um, that's a pretty cool thing because it's about 190 bucks and you can use it every single day. Now that tests uh, for acetone in the breath, which is, uh, they say, uh, close enough. You know what I mean? Like it's not, it's not going to be as accurate as the blood test, but it's it tells you if you're in ketosis or not, which is kind of all like I'm, I'm concerned with. Now, if I had cancer, I would be checking my ketones every day. I want them to be as high as possible. I would supplement with things like exogenous ketones and, you know, a CAMCT oil that'll turn into ketones faster and all these little tricks that I know. Um, and there's a lot of little tricks to keto. And that's, that's the point of it is it's picking up on the tricks and incorporating them into your, into your plan, you know? Well, where people get messed up too is they don't realize they eat too much protein. There's, um, you know, gluconeogenesis and it'll kick you out of keto, uh, ketosis. And so, like for me, especially like because I first got introduced to something similar with carb cycling through uh, Maro de Pasquale. So Maro yeah, worked no with, yeah. yeah, so Maro, the metabolic uh, diet back in the day. so Maro did my yeah. original diet stuff my rookie year in the NFL and he did my supplement deal. So Maro ended up sending me his book and then he did it. And, uh, actually that year between my first and second year in the NFL was by far my biggest physical transformation. I look at the pictures from like my rookie year to my second year and it's like fucking night and day difference so much so that yeah. I remember running into a guy who didn't recognize me and he's like, John, what, what happened? I'm like, I started working with this diet dude. And, uh, yeah. Morrow's deal with like, you know, being able to, you know, ketosis and supplement it through has been, you know, was, was, was huge for him. You're a pretty jack dude. Were you able to, uh, obviously you kept your muscle, right? You didn't lose, you didn't lose, like people are so worried about, did you lose a lot of muscle when you no. did keto? Or? No, for me, um, um, I've never had these dramatic weight losses where people do like the ketogenic diet and they lose, uh, but I've so also a, eaten a for pretty- me, I, Yeah, I don't, I don't lose, I haven't been losing like a ton of weight. I've just been losing good weight. I've been losing fat. Yeah. Just all fat. And like, I feel so much better. Like I've never felt this way in my entire life to where like I'm dieting and I'm like, ah, I just feel fucking great. You know, usually when I'm dieting, I feel awful. You well, know? if you and diet, feel, if, if you diet on carbs, uh, like for me with the dieting on carbs, like, like a low fat approach, well, yeah, fuck, low like, fat, uh, yeah. like, like I will like, like if you're going to give me 2000 calories, and you give me like a 60% carbohydrate, dude, I am literally going to fucking lose well, my mind. Well, here's the fucking problem because what do you get to eat when you're going that low of fat? No, you don't but, get uh, any like... Well, well, you're eating like fucking rice and oatmeal uh -huh. and all this shit and then you basically have like zero fat and you're eating chicken because it's the only protein source that has no fat that you exactly. can... Or, or some god-awful white fish. Mm -hmm. And you know, you're it's like, funny. I, damn um, it. I, I was talking to um, Dave Asprey about it and he was telling me that like... Uh, He's saying like um, that how like grass-fed beef is a better like it's it's a, actually a better protein source than you know it's like we everybody wants to talk about like chicken like I live in the bodybuilding world everybody eats chicken I, I haven't eaten chicken since I started keto over three months ago I haven't had any chicken mm -hmm. I, I fucking hate chicken ch I hate, I hate chicken it. I, I hate think, it dude I, I was eating it just because I thought I had to the whole time and I dude you are uh, you are like a kindred spirit and uh, and one hundred percent because Luke and I have this joke that uh, you yeah. know what's better than chicken anything dirt. dirt dirt is yeah. the only thing like like dirt's better than chicken and uh it's just uh, and i think the reason although people i've like, had a, 
I, I've had a keto pizza that's made out of chicken and Parmesan cheese that actually mm. kind of tr- tastes like pizza. It's called real good pizza. Have you heard of that? Mm-mm. No, the, I'll, the I'll check it out is, though. Yeah, the crust is made out of um, Parmesan cheese and chicken, no but shit. it doesn't taste like chicken. It yeah, yeah, I'm with tastes you. like pizza crust. So it's pretty good. It's like just these little pizzas. Your kids will like them. I have um, my best friend's got a four-year-old and he brings them over and he eats these pizzas. He's got no idea he's, he's keto. He just goes, <laughs> he eats great. these pizzas and he, he asks for it every time. Can the, I get the, the pizza? The, the only reason yeah. I, I'll throw chicken in the diet is um, I like to supplement with olive oil because I found the, there's some pretty extensive research that uh, people that consume more olive oil have a better uh, mental well-being and there's some like yeah. really you know interesting stuff with, with, uh, with olive oil. The problem is is that if you're actually trying to count your macros and figure out your total caloric load, like you know two or three tablespoons of fucking olive oil will kick you up pretty yeah. high. So like for me, like if I know, like, cause I try to supplement different fats, like if I'm going to try to add olive oil into something, I'll usually go with like a chicken and then I'll be like, okay, I get four tablespoons of olive oil for this, you know, X amount of deal. Yeah. So it's more just kind of macro counting and trying yeah, to chi- get it in there. Chicken's like the ab work of dieting, you know, like you, you <laughs> yeah. got to do it. It's not that fun. And it goes back to like Dr. Tom's bomb, you know, constant knowledge bomb, uh, He's big. He helps us with all the micronutrient stuff. Is the, the healthiest people and the best performers eat the wide, widest right, variety of foods, foods right? Yeah. And that's like chicken. I would or egg. say, yeah, that's got to be true. You know, because you know, uh, you're getting the widest variety of nutrients. Right. Yes. And that's body, not right? to, that's not a like knock on the keto approach because he certainly he advocates keto for all sorts of beneficial reasons as well. It's just you know, that even if you're doing keto, you can have a wide fucking variety well, of foods. It, but but here's the thing. I mean, people like in and Mark Mark knows this uh, from the bodybuilding, especially at because. Uh, when I was in high school, I grew up in uh, Palos Verdes, Torrance area. We used to drive to the Venice Golds on Saturday and go train because we like to go see the big bodybuilders. And I remember every time I walked in, there would be like four or five of these dudes, right? When you walk in, there's like that bench to the right would be sitting there eating some like Tupperware that looked yeah, like Tupperware. like mayonnaise and chicken and rice. And these massive fucking dudes would be sitting there eating them every time we went there. And I remember thinking like, it's fucking awful. Yeah. But yet these dudes yeah. were absolutely shredded. Hey, Chris, real quick. Where, where uh, did you train at back then? Uh, so, uh, well, that was at the Venice Golds. But uh, I, oh, yeah, I grew, yeah. so I, I grew up in uh, Palos Verdes, Torrance area. And we used to train yeah. with this old dude named George Zangus. And there was a couple of gyms we used to go to. But I remember every Saturday, my, my workout partner, we would drive. What were the gyms down there at the time? Because I live, you know, it's, it's not far from here. I was wondering what was there at the time. Uh, dude, we, we used to train at uh, uh, South Bay Gym. Um, I don't remember oh, okay. South, South Bay on Western. There was a Golds in Redondo. Yeah, and then we used to, to train there too. Yeah. Well, uh, me, me and Smelly, me and Smelly used to go there. We used to bring chains. So my brother and I used to walk into Gold's gym. We bring chains. We bring rubber bands. We bring all this shit. And uh, at Gold's in Venice, we got, even got yelled at by Apollo Creed, who was like our idol. And we're like, fuck, Apollo, like Apollo Creed's like, you got to bust out those chains every time. They're fucking loud. Like he's all pissed at us. And I'm like, well, yeah, they help you get stronger. Carl how, Weathers. How do they help you get strong? Yeah. How do they get? How do they help you get stronger? And I'm like, I tell him. And say that's bullshit, and he walks away all pissed because he's got to go walk on the treadmill for twenty minutes and read the newspaper every <laughs> single day. That's all he does. He's at the gym every day, does twenty minutes cardio, reading the newspaper, and he's mad that we use chains. I'm like, dude, you're supposed to be like a badass. Like I thought he would be in there training like a maniac, but but no, dude. The uh, so we were trained at South Bay Gym, and then uh, we were trained at that Golds, and there was a trainer there, a uh, guy named uh, Troll Eric Saban. Oh, I know and, Troll. Yeah. We know and, Troll pretty well. Yeah. And, and so I, I knew Troll and then he opened uh, the yard and the we yard, helped yeah. him move in there and like helped him move equipment and all that Good shit. Cool little gym. Yeah. Cool little yeah. gym. Yeah. So we used to train at the yard and then I used to train at Zangus's place and then we used to train Which at the Which high South school Bay. did you go to? Uh, Peninsula High School. Peninsula Palos Verdes. School. Okay. Yeah, Beautiful area down there. It's crazy, man. That's like, that's a great place to grow up. That's yeah, where 
that's where I want to, that's where I want my kids to grow up. You know, like if I, if, if we get, if we have kids, I'm, I'm moving down to Palos Verdes because it's, um, you, you can still, you can still live, afford to live there kind of, um, in parts of it. And then, uh, it's also just what, what great school districts and everything look good, you know, like, and that's, that's the ultimate goal. <laughs> Dude, my parents bought their house there in 1966. So they yeah, bought a house. Yeah. Yeah. 1966. I think they paid like 48, five for it, 48,000 bucks. Yeah. And, uh, and they've, crazy? yeah. And they've lived there for over 50 years. So I think they've been there 51 people, years. And people don't understand how expensive it is to live out in, you know, in LA, like my rent's five grand. I live in a ha- like small little house. It's like, it's insane how much it is out here. And, um, and so like, you know, the, the biggest problem for me is uh, in making these movies is probably where I live. That's probably, you know, like the, the biggest obstacle is just like living in Los Angeles, which is uh, a gift and a curse, um, you know, by, by uh, living somewhere else in the country that's cheaper, I'd be able to actually like crank out a lot more material, which I keep thinking about, by the way, um, because it's, it's just easier to do. It's easier to do when things are cheaper and it's very, very expensive out here. So Unless I get some of that like vice money or something, I might be moving soon too. Well, you know, we, uh, I, uh, Kyle Turley did a deal with vice and they were talking, they were doing like marijuana in the NFL and actually he came, yeah, they, yeah, I saw that, yeah. they came to my gym, uh, or power athlete. And we talked about some training stuff and like, you know, like they, they asked me some, some of my, um, you know, thoughts on the whole deal. And like, uh, you know, I was never a, a cannabis marijuana guy. And so, uh, but the amount of changes that I've seen in Kyle since he stopped taking the prescription, uh, painkillers and all the, you know, different psychotropic drugs that they were giving him. And like the fact that like, he's been able to really like almost basically recapture his existence. And, um, you know, Candace mm-hmm. has been a huge point that like, I'm like, dude, I'm a fan of it. Like it, you know, it's yeah, not you something, know, you know, it depends on, on everybody's own. Like, yeah. Like, so like, if you don't, if it's like, uh, I'm not a fan of your blood pressure medication, let's say, you know, it's like, it doesn't matter if I'm a fan of it or not. It's like, does it work for that guy? Yes, it works for that guy. Let him use it. You know, this works for this person, let them use it. And that's how I feel about all these, uh, you know, medications and, and medicines and like, you know, the FDA and the, and the DEA have had their head up, heads up their ass for, you know, since they, since they were started, the reason, the only reason that they really exist isn't really to protect us. It's to protect the government's businesses. Sure. So it's to protect the government, you know, from big business coming in and, and taking over their businesses. Um, alcohol, you know, it's like, um, what is it? Department, we're just making a joke. <laughs> um, the Department of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and John Oliver said on his show, or the Department of Everything That's Awesome, <laughs> you know, He's like, he's like, they lump all this shit together. It's all the shit that people want, you know? Well, and, but, uh, but uh, the thing which is interesting and, and um, you know, you talked about this and I'm, I'm sure you, you know, the statistic offhand much better, but I mean, there's more people addicted to prescription painkillers and opiates than there are any other drug, any illegal drug out there. Yeah. And, and, and also the, um, in states like Tennessee, Alabama, and Maine, there are more people than are, there are more prescriptions written for opioids than there are people. So that shows you that like, the people that are getting them are getting like 10 prescriptions a year because like, you know, like it's not like everybody's getting a prescription, but how, is, how, how are so many written? They're getting so many of them, like repeat customers. And there's, there's customer, there, there's people where they go and they look up on the databases and they find out that, you know, they've gotten 200 prescriptions filled in the past year. That's just insane. They're going to different doctors, different places, and they're making all that stuff harder. And they're really trying to um, crack down on it, but they're not cracking down. Um, with what's at the core of, of drug addiction and what's at the core of, um, 
kids doing this stuff and that's connection. I think we talked about that a little bit, but uh, really it's a lack of uh, connection with other human beings. Uh, the abundance of social media and kids being on their phone all the time. Uh, when I did trophy kids, the thing that I, I observed was that children don't talk to each other anymore. Um, they don't have conversations like they used to. When I went on uh, road trips with trophy kids and watched these little girls that were like playing soccer together, they were all on a phone. They were like eight. Uh, they were eight years old and they all had like a cell phone and they were all on their phone and none of them talked to each other. And then when I would try to interview the kids and say like, oh, how do you like soccer? How do you like baseball? They would like run to their parent and grab their leg. They couldn't even talk to like, but I would go into the urban settings, right? Where the parents like maybe didn't pay much, much attention to them. The kids were left alone more. The kids were, you know, pushed out into society a little bit more. You go talk to those kids, they'll, they'll talk to you all. Sure. And they don't have a cell phone. You know what I mean? And, and there's something about that that I think goes a long way into the development of who those kids become. You know, my brother as a wise ass said, we were talking about this before, somebody asked you what, what they can do to make their kid a better athlete. And Smelly will tell you, drop them off in the ghetto. And he means it. Yeah. He's dead serious because uh, struggle is life. That's yeah. what life is, right? And most of the time, uh, kids, you know, unfortunately, it's like, how, like, how are your kids going to learn to struggle? You know, like, they're, they're not going to learn it like you did necessarily. They're going to learn it as much as they can. But like, you know, it's like as we grow up and we provide greater and greater things for our children, it's harder to teach, teach them those lessons, you know? You know, the, uh, um, th- it's funny you say that, but uh, part of the thing, and I, I don't know if you knew this, but, um, you know, I, uh, I grew up in L.A. and we were living in Orange County for a bunch of years. And uh, we kind of had an advantageous kind of deal where we started looking around about basically moving um, out of state and moving to different places. Cause like we saw like the environment that we saw in orange County and our neighbors and kind of just what was going on. It wasn't the environment that I grew up in and it wasn't in the environment that I wanted my kids to grow up in. It's not the memories I wanted for them to have when they were little and kind of growing up and it wasn't what I, the value system. So we started looking around and we had kind of an advantageous deal where dude knocked on our door and wanted to buy our house and we sold our house and uh, to a dude in a matte black convertible Lamborghini and we started looking around and we actually bought 16 acres out here in the country outside Austin and yeah, that's uh, awesome, man. basically just moved the whole family out and uh, you know, and Luke and the whole company and we came out here and like, you know, things like Saturdays and Sundays, we like, you know, uh, like we basically, you know, walk or we like, you know, they cut Doesn't the grass. It we seem work like your, uh, seems like your days. Like I know when I go visit Mark, it seems like my days from going from California to anywhere else in the, in the country, my days are like exponentially longer. Like all of a sudden, like the day is like, wow, it's 20, like the days here are 24 hours, but back home, they're only like 12. Yeah. And I don't know why. And so, um, but in I mean, LA, like you don't leave your house past six because you just don't. It's yeah, because like of traffic. And, yeah, it's, and it's, it's, I'm not but I mean, like, uh, you know, like this Saturday, what do we do? Like, uh, I have uh, grass to cut. We have, you know, like all this different stuff that we have to do. And then on Sunday, we basically, you know, take a walk and, you know, take the kids see, out. And we, we, we look for like. With, what you're providing for your children and you're not even realizing it is connections, responsibilities, things to be around for, things to work for, things to go after. Uh, fun, enjoyment, family, community, like all that great stuff, right? So you're well, teaching them and, all that by just being around, out and around, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and like, um, so, in so LA, like, it's harder to get that. So I'm not dude, knocking LA, I'm saying it's harder to get it. 
it was dead. I mean, we got all these different like pamphlets and uh, leaflet deals of like the different like spiders and snakes and whatever. And like my daughters are like obsessed with trying to find like all the different spiders. They've, they've found all these different snake skins and are trying to find snakes. And like, we like, you know, and uh, it's part of this uh, interesting thing, but like the, the big move was um, I was so tired of living in one place and like the gym that we had was somewhere else and like all the different like commercial spaces we were renting. And I was like, enough of this shit, man. And, well, um, like how much is it, you know, how much is it to, uh, rent a gym there like rent a space there and compared to like los dude, angeles like you can't dude, we we bought enough of the land where uh the guys are actually pouring tomorrow so we're building a four thousand square foot building for power athlete with uh, our gym and uh basically build everything we want so we're building that on the property we have another little barn that we're kidding right, right on your own property yeah so and then we have a little barn man, that's awesome i'm dude, so happy to hear that so now we have a house and we'll have the gym and then i have a little barn that we kitted out into our office space so now my kids uh, you know, and like, dude, like, uh, we just cleaned up and put everything in. So they're going to get chickens and they got to help raise chickens as part of their, they're super excited about, but like, not only, uh, now that we have a gym and, you know, they know that, you know, not only does dad and his buddies get up and work out, the kids can come train and just like having everything in a space where they're around it to me, as I kind of sat back and looked and thought, shit, man, what's a better existence than, you know, my daddy and all of his friends get up every morning, they train, the girls do this. I mean, you know, and there's, like we have a uh, about 1200 foot of Creek front on the backside of our property and we have like trees to take out and like, you know, like the guys are, are sort of chomping at the bit for like, when do we get to clear the Creek, dude, we can like, you know, bulldozers and, and work and do it. And I think like creating this environment, at least what we're working for here is more of a, a is kind of more similar to what I the memories I want them to have more so than just orange County fucking John Wayne flight path with 400 planes a day flying yeah, overhead like if you look at what mark built in sacramento you know it's it's so hard it's like it's so hard for me to see because i'm like well dude if your gym was in san francisco oh. and it would be, it'd be packed if it was in here and, and like that's the way i look at things right and mark goes like yeah but i don't want that you don't understand if it was packed then i can't work with people one-on-one -on -one. if it was packed you know he's like i like sacramento because there's nobody there and people have to come to me if they want you know and, and he's right because it's like it would just be too crazy you know and, um, and so for him, he's right where he needs to be. And for you, you're right where you need to be. And I, you know, it's like, and for me and what I do, I'm right where I need to be. So it's like, it's all about like finding that and figuring that, you know, figuring that out. But what I've actually figured out, uh, more recently is that I can actually be anywhere, which I like to, to know, you know, um, basically the film that I'm doing, I live, um, three miles from one of my editors and four miles from my other editor but you'll never see us all in the same room together because like they're working right now. You know, I'm, I'm doing this, but I'm right after this, I'm going back to work on the film. And I just, what are you, know, you working we on? Kind of all, we all, we kind of, we're working on the Kratom movie, but we all kind oh, of okay. work, we all kind of work independently, which is really weird. It's like, I get more work done by myself and then I'll go to them and be like, dude, I found all this like great information and I'll lay it on, you know, my, my guys. And then, um, we'll figure out what to do with it. And then I'll send them off for, you know, a couple of days on their own to go edit it because it just takes time. You know? And so where, uh, where do you live in LA? I live in Venice. So I okay. live, um, I live two blocks from the beach in uh, in Venice. And, um, the reason I, I moved back to Venice was I was living in Northern California and I was working, uh, I was actually working for Mark at super training, uh, shooting a bunch of videos and stuff for him. Uh, in between, you know, doing another project, which is like sort of a great thing to have. And, um, you know, hopefully like, hopefully like on and off, be able to go back to go back, you know, and help Mark. Obviously he's got a great video crew up there now. 
Um, but we all work together on like coming up with ideas and coming up with stuff. And like with markets different, it's not like, Oh, I'm trying to do this because I want to make a certain amount of money. I'm trying, it's just like, I'm just doing it because my brother and it's cool, you know, and he happened to along the way do really well with it. Uh, but that's, you know, that's his stuff. I, I like, I, I, you know, my thing is Mark has become ultra successful and now I have to beat him. So <laughs> I'm my girlfriend every day. I'm like, I'm going to blow that motherfucker out of the water. I like, like it. When, when he sees what my next, like, so we're finishing this, uh, this Kratom movie right now. And then um, the approach that I have to this keto movie and all the stuff that goes with it, it's going to be a whole, it's a whole thing coming. Right. So I was like, you wait till you see that buddy. And then, then we'll see your answer for that. But yeah, I know I'll do that. And he'll open up like a hundred thousand square foot facility or something. <laughs> Hey, you know what? I, I, I fucking t- so I owned a commercial gym and uh, I, I realized I'd never wanted to train anybody. I just wanted a place with fucking weights that I could train and bang weights with my friends. I think that's all Mark wanted. Well, right? and, and, and I remember when, when he was moving out of uh, when they were renting space and they had that other little spot was last time when I went up and did the podcast and then he moved. Oh, yeah. That, super um, Midtown Fitness or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they were in the deal and he was telling me about, you know, the new super training when they were going to build. And I was like, don't do it, dude. I was like, stay here. This is fucking perfect, dude. This is great. This is gritty. You're going to get into a situation where you're going to have fucking members and this. And, and uh, he's like, no, 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 it's really great. And I'm like, I'm like, dude, in five years, you're going to call me and you'll be like, dude, I should have never have, uh, you know, but he, what's killer is his gym isn't subsidized based upon membership. It's subsidized because it's, it's what they do. Well, it's made made for the product. So that people are like, well, why is it free? And it's like, well, it's not really free. It's really like really what that, what super training can zip consists of, um, is Mark, um, fat Dan, Marcus, uh, used to be silent Mike, but, but he left. Um, but we still love him. And, uh, what's he doing now? You know what? I don't, I don't know. He, um, he was just kind of taking a different path. Uh, silent Mike was off at a barbell brigade a lot and working with those guys down in LA uh, yeah. here. And, um, what, you know, like people grow apart, I believe. And I think he, uh, you know, he grew apart as far as like, um, he was doing well on his own. Like he was, he was becoming his own thing, you know? And I think Mark saw that and we've talked about it since day one. Like I used to say to Simon Mike as a joke, uh, one of these days you're going to stab Mark in the back. And like, <laughs> when is, when does that come? When, when is that coming? Cause I'm going with you. I was always kidding. And, um, no, we, we love Mike. He's a great dude. Um, he's done a lot for uh, super training and slingshot and I never, never would want to um, discount that. And to tell you the truth, I'm sad that he's gone. You know, I, yeah. I love it. And oh, I, 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 I remember when I was up in- Mark, Mark is sad that he's gone too. It's not easy to part ways. Like if you just had to, give your guys the boot you'd be sad about it you know it's not always cool i remember when when i was up at mark's place they just moved into that house and i remember uh uh you know talking with mike and they had just hired mike as their first real like full-time employee he's the first guy yeah yeah and and i remember like we were sitting there hanging out and uh, the hilarious part was uh you know uh, mark was like hey stay at my house which i thought was fucking cool and then as we were driving home he's like hey you want to grab eat i was like man let's fucking go to the supermarket and we bought then uh we went bought a bunch of food and i basically we made a little video of me as his private chef which yeah, I don't even know, know if you ever put out. It, it's it, what's crazy is like uh, Brian Shaw, for example, he's the world's strongest man. He's like, oh, I'm going to come over, you know, whatever. And so the way that Mark always uh, sets it up is like that. He's like, oh, let's think of something to film funny with Brian. So he like filmed Brian cooking up steaks and like, you know, like, he did that with Brian too. It's like, he just thinks it's fun and um, he's got a good mind for it. You know, it's funny that, um, that I'm a filmmaker and I'm like, uh, uh, the first time I saw him interview Chris Duffin, 
on his YouTube channel, on Mark's YouTube channel. I was like, dude, what are you trying to do here? Like, I'm the interview guy. And, <laughs> and then they, then they were doing like the podcast and all this stuff. And I said, I said, I was like, you know, you're actually really good at it. This is something that you're really good at because you actually really want to know things. And I think that that's the importance of, uh, of being good at what you do is having a genuine interest and a genuine, if you already know everything, who cares? Nobody cares. Well, it, you're inquisitive. People want to know what you want to know. Isn't there something to be said about um, people can really spot when people are disingenuous? Like that's something that uh, that I notice, and like you kind of like when you watch things, you can tell when people are genuinely invested and with yeah. like like they actually want to know stuff. I and I, I always have thought that's why your uh, your stuff was so powerful, and especially with uh, bigger, faster, stronger. I mean, the the funny part is this morning, my, my wife and I watched it, and I mean years ago. I remember yeah. we watched it and I, I told her, I was like, Hey, I'm having uh, Chris Bell on the show. And she was like, Oh, bigger, faster, stronger. Remember when we watched that. And my wife doesn't ever remember anything movie based. Like I could <laughs> like, I can quote you uh, airplane, Caddyshack, you know, like blazing saddles, any of that. Yeah. Stuff. She does nothing, but yet she remembered and she's like, Oh shit. Like that was, that was such a good movie. And I was like, well, what'd you, what did you really like about it? And she was like, it was authentic and it was honest. And it didn't feel like uh, like some Hollywood fucking hand job. And I was like, fuck, that's so true. I mean, and that's, I think, why why it was powerful. And I think that's why you've done a good job getting these messages across. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think a lot of people will be really surprised, too, um, if I ever get to do some scripted stuff. So that stuff's coming, too. I just wrote the best thing that I've ever that I've ever put my hands on in the past two over the past two weeks. I just wrote a, um, a treatment for a television series that takes place. Uh, here in Venice, California, 1980 to 1990-ish, you know? And uh, it involves a guy I was talking about before named Dan Duchesne. Yeah, who was oh yeah, who, I know who exactly who he is. He moved to California with a dream, and uh, like two or three years later, he's writing the Underground Steroid Handbook and becoming the steroid guru who would change the entire world from a one-bedroom apartment in Venice, California. He changed, you know, Hollywood, sports, anti-aging, fucking everything. He brought all the drugs that are on the market now, they're all Dan Duchesne. He had his hands on everything, you know? When you talk about um, using things like, like for example, like metformin for a ketogenic diet, you know, like he was, he was on that 20 years ago. He was on the whole, uh, like no carbs, you know, 20 plus years ago. He died at 47 years old um, due to polycystic kidney disease, which is a genetic disease um, that his sister and his mother had died from also. Uh, but his journey, it's so fascinating because uh, what happened with him was when he was about 20 years old, he, he could never get any bigger. I mean, it was never like really a very big guy, um, but he could never get any bigger. And the only thing that ever worked for him was, was steroids. So he just decided I'm going to dive in. I'm going to learn everything I can know about steroids. And like I said before, no matter how much shit I take, I'm not going to be you. But all he wanted to do was kind of like be somebody. You know, he just wanted like a little bit of recognition. Like, hey, I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood, that whole kind of rocky thing. And that's all Duchesne wanted was just to kind of people to recognize him for his knowledge and, you know, and uh, basically he, he wanted to return the favor for what steroids did to him and, you know, basically reinvent America. And I think that it's a really interesting story. Um, we, we, we never seen, we've never seen anything like this on television. The only thing that's like kind of even remotely close to it would be like a breaking bad kind of thing. But, Sure. This is just such in a different, um, in a different world that no one's ever seen. You know, it's like I mean, how many cool people can you think of to be in it? Like we keep talking about, like, well, I think I want Jake Gyllenhaal to play the main guy. No, I think I want, 
uh, Edward Norton to play. And I think, you know, like, I'm trying to think, like, well, we should play Dan Duchesne. Like, he's got to be, like, he's got to be, like, can't be that big, but he's got to be kind of shredded, and he's got to be kind of, like, you know, he's got to be, like, a little bit cool, but a little bit dorky, right? So we've been throwing, and then also I have a lot of friends that are in the business that I'm going to bring this to. Like, we're going to we'll bring it to uh, people like Josh Brolin. Like, you got to play the FBI agent, dude. You know, like, so there's people that I'm good friends with. Joe Manganiello, another guy who's like jacked, who would be awesome for this. John Cena, another guy who's awesome. I'd be great for this stuff. So, um, you know, we have all these friends and stuff, and I have all these uh, cool elements I want to weave into this. I just got to get sold first. So that's the first thing to work on, and that's what I'm, I'm working on now. I'm working on selling that. I'm actually might be out in Austin pretty soon to, to talk to Lance Armstrong again. Uh, I might do something with him. We've been discussing it. Um, that would be great. So basically what I want to do with Lance is uh, sit him down with my other buddy. <laughs> so I'm friends with Lance and through basically through Bigger, Stronger, Faster, he saw it and he liked it and he had contacted me and we just became friends, you know? I'm not like best friends or anything, but I know him. And then um, my other friend who's a good friend is, um, is uh, Jeff Nowitzki. And Jeff Nowitzki is the guy that caught him. And when I was at Lance's house doing the podcast, which he lives by you, by the way, should hook that up. He said, yeah. Yeah, no, I, 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 dude, I, I, uh, um, one, if you come in Austin and you don't call me, I'm going to be pissed. Well, uh, I didn't even know you lived there. You know, I was uh, you when I was there. Yeah. Cause I mean, dude, you come over, we'll barbecue. It'll be fucking, fucking epic. I had no idea. Um, but, but, uh, uh, second of all, uh, I have always, like, I've always been a fan of Lance Armstrong. Um, and I, for years where people be like, oh, this, I'd be like, who cares? I'm like, dude, like, the thing which, which always blew my mind is that they would have like all these dudes that were like he was beating were like getting popped for drugs or dying or having all these like huge problems and people were like, oh, this. And I'm like, dude, like, I don't know why people are so obsessed with this. He's whether or not he's taking drugs or not, he's beating the best people in yeah. the world at, wh at what they are. And I mean, and, and I think people don't like him because of him as a person because he's kind of prickly and was kind of an asshole. And I, I never really ever heard anybody ever say, you know, Lance Armstrong is like uh, this fucking, you know, really great dude. Like he's fucking... You know what? When I, and, and, when but I met him, when but I who met cares? Him, and maybe, maybe this is because it's after everything and maybe he's been humbled and maybe, sure. you know, maybe a different person. He was fucking awesome. He was like... Do, I've always been like, a fan of his. You know? It was like, um, I don't know, man. You know when, when you, you just feel like, I'm not worthy. I'm like sitting at the table like, like how am I sitting here talking to this dude, you know? And But then like halfway through it, you're like, I am sitting at this table and fuck oh. it, I'm going to do the best I can. You know? So, I mean, there, uh, I can't remember who, who told me this, but um, some, somebody I met who was a pretty uh, high-level triathlete, um, and I, I can't fucking – like. I'm having trouble placing the story, but they were, they were basically a pretty high level triathlete and they were uh, competing in some event and they were going through and there was like this young kid who was like, basically like, uh, uh, like, you know, nobody would like, wasn't even on a nice, you know, just like a fucking, just, you know, run of the mill bike, like nothing it was like basically fucking destroyed them. And, uh, the guy was basically telling me his stories like, and, and, um, can't remember like it's gonna fucking stick me but uh they were you know their comment was like yeah i mean this kid was just an absolute monster and uh it was like who was it and they were like it was fucking lance armstrong like yeah like before everything he was i mean you know and like we said you can give yeah, everybody knew, everybody knew he was the guy yeah but on. i mean you can give everybody all the drugs in the world and you're not gonna have the capacity to suffer like that dude i used to love to watch the tour de france and like i'm, I'm not a cycling fan but i'm a tour de france fan because i'm not a cycling fan either but he made me like it which is actually well, even bigger right 
right. well, watching those dudes go through uh, the Pyrenees and go through the mountains and watching him literally ride dudes into fucking oblivion and just crush their world. Well, you me- know where he, you know where they ride into? They ride into ketosis, basically. So yeah. he explained that to me. He explained to me the bonk is basically like you get Sugar. where all your glucose is gone yeah. and you get high, you know. And you get, he said, and then once you push through that, he's like, you get a second win, but it's not a win. It's, it's like your brain's on fire, you know? And he's like, in that, that extra push, he's like, you can do anything at that point. If you can get to that point, he's like, you can do anything, but you can only do anything for about 10 minutes. But I mean, his, his ability to, his capacity to suffer. And then also the strategic nature of how those guys ride in teams and like the guys that are like going back and forth, bringing in the food, going through it, like the whole uh, just the whole operation to me was so strategic that I'd love to watch it and do it. And I was, I, I'll always watch the tour de France. And, uh, and then the hilarious part is he gets popped and this whole fucking scandal, whatever they tried to go back and figure out who to give him his jerseys to. And they had to go back to like the 32nd dude. Cause either yeah, everybody had like tossed. You know, yeah. It was either dead or popped or, or had, had, had tested positive. So they just didn't give him to everybody. And like, my thing is like, it's not cheating if it's a fucking fair, if everybody's doing it and it's a fair field, like it, it just, yeah, they just have to make it, um, you know, according to the rules of the sport. Now, what, what cycling could do? Well, first of all, cycling, they don't have a good test for uh, EPO. I think they just came up with a better one, but, um, back, um, back a couple of years ago, when we did bigger, stronger, faster. There was a guy that came up with a test for EPO that cost like 30 bucks. And it was really, it was black and white. It was like, I give you this and be like, here, take this test. And if it's, if it's black, then that's cool. If it's white, then that's, you know, not cool. Or whatever. And so it was like a black, it was sort of a test that said either you're on EPO exogenously or you're not. And this guy um, developed it and he got a letter that he showed us. It's in our DVD extras, I believe. And it says, um, it says, dear Mr. Jackson, we regret to inform you that we cannot accept your test. This is from USADA. This, this test would make it impossible for the United States to be on a level playing field with the rest of the international, you know, group that we're in. So basically like if we use this test, we're going to be at a disadvantage because we're going to catch a bunch of guys doping and the other countries aren't using this test and they're not going to catch anybody. So our guys will be banned, but their guys won't. So, so rather than like all of cycling saying, Hey, this is a good thing. We have a definitive test now. They just shunned it. And they just got rid of it. And well, it's, I mean, dude, and, and you know this, I mean, uh, have you ever in any of the movies, I mean, cause the, the things that you're talking about are, are fucking painful to some people. It's all about the money. You know, yeah, I mean, it, always it, yeah, I mean, it, it always goes back and people are like, Oh, what's the motivation? I'm like, it's fucking dollars and cents, dude. And like, you know, whether <laughs> You, you know, you talk about the, uh, the Kratom, I mean, and you look at how that contributes with like, uh, you know, the cannabis, and then you look at all these other things, man, it always goes back to the fucking almighty dollar and people protecting their interests. I mean, your prescription sure. thugs. I mean, dude, the, the richest drug deals in those <laughs> dealers are the pharmaceutical companies that are producing these drugs. Yeah. And if you look at like, if you just take a look at, um, you know, just things in general and the, the situation in general, is um, we have a heroin problem that's gigantic uh, here in the United States. And then now people are taking shit. Like I just was reading this article about this um, elephant tranquilizer that people are taking. And they're, what they're doing is like they'll take a bottle of it, like the bottle like that big, and one drop will kill somebody. Elephant they, tranquilizer. Yeah, they need to take, they take one drop and they put it in fentanyl for like 100 people, you know, and it spikes the drug and people will still die from it. 
So, um, but they get their high, you know what I mean? So like so most people get high from it and then a couple people will die from it here and there. But like what they've been doing is spiking um, fentanyl with elephant tranquilizers. And if that shit doesn't scare you, then you're just crazy. You know I mean? Like the, for, to take any sort of drug on the black market now is insanity. And to take any dietary supplement, you know, even, even like supplements like now, there's, um, there's a lot of supplements out there labeled not for human consumption. We yeah. see it a lot in the steroid world. You know, I Dude. was actually working with a um, hormone clinic in Miami for a while. And uh, when I found out that what they were doing was illegal, I told the guy, like, hey, I can't, I can't really do anything with you because what you're doing is illegal. At first, what they, what they did was you would call this place, you would talk to their doctor, their doctor would set you up on a prescription and then you would get testosterone from them. What it ended up being was you get online, you order as much Trenbolone as you want and they fucking send it to you. And I was like, I can't be part of that. And they just got busted in Miami like last week. And the guy's calling me to like help him out. I'm like, dude, I, I'm not like, I'm not the one selling illegal drugs. You are, you know? And so like uh, that shit scares me. Like the black market scares me, the black market for uh, steroids and for prescription drugs and all this stuff. It's just like, it's so unknown. And for just for like people with you having kids, like that kind of stuff scares me. You know, I, I know a lot of friends that have kids now and I start thinking about things a little bit differently. You know, um, I had a good friend uh, or I still have a good friend um, and he's got a little boy and I remember he was a fucking badass, you know, a law biker dude. And, um, and he has a, he has a son. I remember hitting him up and being like, you know, now his boy's older and I asked him, I'm like, man, uh, you know, he ever fuck around or get any of the stuff that you did? And he's like, nah, you know what? Nah, he stays, he's straight and he's straight as an arrow. And I was like, well, what do you think uh, was the difference? And he made a point. He's like, you know, I never shielded my kid from the bad. And we've talked about this. Like I do with, and he's like, you know, what you do as a parent is you have this, uh, basically this paternal instinct to shield your child from, from all the bad in the world. And what you do is, uh, you know, you fucking create this alternate reality and everybody's this and like all this other shit, but it doesn't prepare your child for the fucking real world. And he said, you know, that's why you were joking when you said, Mark said, Hey, drop the kid off in the ghetto. Well, those kids, they live it every single day. So they grow up uh, extremely street smart, very fucking, you know, like they're, they're, well, they fit, they, he, he's a son they just figure it out. You know, they just yeah. figure it out on their own. You know, and that's, that's important. I think. And, and he, so he, he made the point. He's like, don't ever shield your daughters. Don't ever shield your kids from everything. So, I mean, like we were out the other day and there was a guy panhandling on the street and my daughter was like, who, you know, what's he doing? I'm like, he's asking for money. She's like, well, why? I'm like, um, because he's homeless. And I, I explained to her and she's like, well, why is he homeless? I'm like, if he's in this situation, there's a good chance he's got some form of mental illness and, and drugs are involved. And we went through and then she wanted to know what drugs were. And so going through and like talking to him about it. And I remember people being like, you talk to your five-year-old about drugs. I'm like, yeah, you know yeah, what? I'm going to talk to him about this shit. And I'm going to talk to him about alcohol. I'm going to talk to him about all these things so that when they're 15, I don't have to fucking break the plate or more importantly, they grow up knowing that, you know what? The world is not this magical kind and general place that you see in Disney. Well, and it's also nice to teach kids like, hey, look, drugs are something that adults take, you know, usually to have a good time. But there's there's drugs that are really dangerous, you know, and, and a lot of them are really dangerous. And, you know, to, to explain kids things in a proper way rather than um, to try to uh, look at the way that they try to get people not to smoke pot with like reefer madness and all that shit. It didn't work. You know, what what really works is like I was outside of Walmart. I was with my mom and we were walking to Walmart. And the same exact thing happened. A little kid goes like, daddy, why was that guy taking a shower in Walmart in the bathroom? And the dad was like, because he's, he's a drug addict. <laughs> and the kid's like, what's a drug addict? He's like, well, he took too many drugs and now he, he doesn't have money to afford anything. So he lives in the streets and he takes a shower at Walmart. And the kid was like, 
I don't want to do drugs. Like I, that, that's like yeah. the extent of the conversation. I, I just heard him go, and, and to, to me, like that was cool. Like the way that the dad explained it was so matter of fact, he's like, well, he's obviously on drugs. Cause the guy looked like he was all messed up. He's like, cause I'm sound drugs. And same thing, like you said, he's probably got some mental illness that came about because of the drugs or vice versa. It could have been mental illness, got him into the drugs, drugs got him into the mental illness. I always debate that with my brother, you know, with Mad Dog. It's like, well, what, which one was he? Because he was a um, pretty normal guy until he went on Paxil, which was an antidepressant. And then he started going downhill. Then he tried to commit suicide several times. And then- What was it, uh, what, what caused the depression? Uh, I think the depression, you know, who, it's hard to tell me. My parents are the nicest people in the world. My parents will do anything for us. Uh, you know, back when we were kids, my dad would have taken a bullet for any one of us, and he still would to this day, and so would my mom. And I know that for a fact. They would do anything for us. Um, if right now, so, like if right now I was caught in some scandal and the whole world turned against me, I know I could just drive to my parents' house and they would take care of me and everything would be fine. You know, like that's how much my parents love us. I know that. So with, as a parent, what do you do when your kid goes south like Mad Dog and, and, and it goes wrong? I just think my parents and my dad did every possible thing that they could do. And sometimes things just end wrong. They just end in a bad way. Now, the things that are unfortunate are the things that I went through afterwards where like now one of my best friends owns one of the biggest, um, he's the CEO of one of the biggest rehabs in the world in Cliffside Malibu. And I hang out with him a lot now. And we talk about things a lot now. And I said like, I I never, I never once said to him, I, the only thing I've ever said to him about Mad Dog was I said, I wish he could have met you because I think things would have been different. And by that, I mean, is like when you have somebody who's so um, steadfast in what they're doing, so, um, so their, their brain is so engaged on like Mad Dog was like, he was obsessed with getting high, obsessed with, you know, he would get obsessed with with drugs and fraud. And I think the reason why was because some of the connections that he was trying to make in the world weren't working out. Like it was always because of a girl and it was always because of, you know, or because of a friend screwed him over or because, you know, there's always something. I think he was always just looking for connection and, and to really be loved. And when he didn't get that from girls found somewhere else that weren't his mother. Yeah. He found it in drugs. And I, you know, his, um, you know, look at it. If you look at it like this, like, so, um, my first girlfriend ever, she still lives out here in California. I'm still friends with her. I can call her any day. We can have a great conversation. Be fine. It's cool. Mad dog's first girlfriend ever, um, basically got him kicked out of, well, not kicked out of, but made him quit football at university of Cincinnati, made him quit football when he transferred to Connecticut, made him, um, almost quit pro wrestling and then almost got put got him put in jail. Right. That's the first girlfriend. Second girlfriend did have him put in jail. Third, you know, it's like he yeah. just was around shitty ass people all the time. And that's because that's where drugs bring you. And it's because it's where alcohol brings you. And, you know, they say that you're going to end up like the five people that you hang around. And I truly believe that. And I'm always looking for new friends, you know, because of that. Because I'm like, when, when one of my friends falls off, I try to get them back up, you know. Um, but if they can't come back up, then I need to break away because I can't go down. You know, sure. I, I can never go, I can never go backwards um, with what I'm doing. I'm coming up on um, three years of sobriety right now. Congratulations. Three, 
thank you. I, I you know, it's, it's just what I do now. It's not, it's not to me. It's like, to me, like, uh, it's almost like, well, when is, when is my sobriety date? It's like April 30th or something. Like I don't even really, uh, keep track anymore. Uh, I started, kept, uh, I kind of stopped kept keeping track of the days. Like once I hit 30 days, I'm like, you know, like, cause I look at it, like, it's funny. I look at sobriety, like a diet and I look like a, at a diet, like sobriety. So for my ketogenic diet, there's not 12 steps, but there's a certain amount of steps I have to go through to get into ketosis. There's a certain amount of steps I have to do to maintain ketosis. And I also look at it as like, once I'm in ketosis, I'm sober. And if I get out of ketosis, that's getting drunk or getting stoned or getting Do you, do you feel like, uh, like the ketosis and the sobriety kind of go hand in hand? I think they totally go hand in hand. I wouldn't be against actually, um, I wouldn't be against this as a therapy. Well, uh, every time I've seen people that were recovering addicts, um, you know, like the, they kind of end up backfilling with different things. I mean, whether it be like, you know, sugar and yeah, different God. things. Usually it's gone. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well it's God or, uh, exercise. I mean, like, you know, like, dude, like you ever talk to anybody that like has done ultra marathons, these people that run 50, 100, 200 miles, yeah. just, everyone was like, Oh, I'm a recovering addict. And, uh, now I just go fucking run for 200 miles Yeah, and like, crazy. like, or, or, you know, or, uh, you know, just other things in that way. And I, I, I think, which was interesting because my, my neighbor asked me a question about this recently. He's like, you know, do you know anything about addiction? Cause he, you know, his daughter has, uh, has some problems and he was, and I was like, honestly, I, I don't, um, I've, you know, like the addiction, I don't really have any addiction. Like, um, you know, I'll, I'll drink some beers, but if you told me that, you know, beer didn't exist anymore, there's no alcohol. I'm really not that bummed about it. Like they would give me painkillers when I played in the NFL. Oh, and, and, and I was trying to watch a YouTube video by a guy named Johan Hari. So it's, it's spelled like Johan, J-O-H-A-N-N, Hari, H-A-R-I. Wait, hold on, hold on. About, uh, wait, what's it? Uh, can you say it again? Johan, J-O-H what? J-O-H-A-N-N. Hari, H-A-R-I, he's on YouTube on a TED Talk, and he talks about uh, what we were just touching on a little bit, but he really gets into his connection, and um, he thinks that um, the, he says like, you know, the opposite of um, addiction isn't sobriety, the opposite of addiction is connection, hmm. and getting people to connect on all sorts of different levels uh, will give them things to be sober for, and I totally agree with that, because like, for example, I had to um, I haven't today you made me accountable by saying like, Hey, I want to do this podcast at 10 AM. Otherwise there was nothing going on at 10 AM. <laughs> well, like I, you know, like I, at 10 AM I'd be here, I'd be working, sure. but I would, but I have to make myself work and I have to get, you know, so, but, but the accountability of, so for example, like um, if I had to be back here at 10 o'clock to start working on my movie, I wouldn't be back here at 10 o'clock. I'd be back here at 1130. Sure. Uh, but if I have to be back here for to talk to you, I'm going to make sure I'm back here because I've made a commitment and now I got to keep that commitment. And I say that the strength of our character is based on making commitments and keeping commitments and that's it. And so if you look at that, like that's, that's like a pretty crazy, you know, crazy thing. It's like, that's, those two things are like really important to a lot of people and we don't realize that. And so when we realize that and we make those connections and we show up for them and we're on time and, we don't look disheveled and we're present for it. Um, it goes a long way with a lot of people. You know, it's like, it's as simple. It's like, oh yeah, John, he always shows up on time and he's always here. I can always count on him, right? That's a big deal to people. Uh, but when other people are like, oh yeah, dude never shows up. He's fucking late all the time. It's like, yeah. you know, that's how you end up talking about the, that person and phrasing it in a, in a negative, you know, fashion. So like, I always say this about just 
life in general. I'm, I'm a white belt and I'm always learning. And I think if we always keep that mentality about us, just about life and about things that happen, about food, about diet, about training, we stay open-minded, we, we can never really lose, you know? So when we close our mind, when we think we have all the answers, I mean, Jack LaLanne said it years ago, if we had all the answers, we'd be bored, you know? Game over, it's done. But we don't have all the answers. We keep searching, we keep looking. And every day in health and fitness, we uncover something new that wasn't there before. And it uh, pisses a lot of us off. A lot of us are in this dogma of um, certain things that we like to hear, you know. And, um, you know, it's like, they'll say, oh, you gotta do, you know, you gotta lift heavy, you gotta, you know, and they go, well, maybe, maybe actually heavy isn't giving me enough time under tension to get to where I need to be or, you know, whatever. Like, there's, there's so many factors that, like, you gotta look into and then optimize those factors and uh, learn how to incorporate them all. So I go back to that white belt mentality all the time. I think I might've got that from like Brian Shaw or maybe, you know, I think I may have got it from, uh, you know, I got it from, I was talking about it with Brian Shaw. We got it, me and Brian Shaw both got it from Fabricio Verdun, the fighter. Because he actually, at one point was a white belt, but he was on the set of a movie and Brian was in the movie, this kickboxer movie that they're doing. And um, he kept saying, and was on, with acting, I'm just a white belt. I'm just a white belt. So by the end of the shoot with Fabrizio, I'm just a white belt, dude. I don't, <laughs> and so uh, when, whenever he like, would ask a question about anything, I'd be like, I don't know. I'm just a white belt. I'm just learning. And he'd always say, ah, you learn, see, you know. And so I really feel like that mentality, that was something that happened to me like last year. But I, not, like ever since he told me that, I just keep saying it. I'm just a white belt. Just, you know, because I feel like... Uh, doing these documentaries and doing that, I may have come up with some answers, but the beauty of what I do is I never came up with any answers. All I did was ask a bunch of questions. Yeah, and, and you're looking to create dialogue. Um, the one that I use, which is similar is, um, and I do, we've, I've said this for years, is I try to go into everything with an empty cup. So when, yeah. we, go, when, when we go teach seminars, um, you know, we go teach, you know, a power athlete, cross the football, whether it be SSA, sports specific, we go in, and people would come in there with the express you know, uh, idea of us confirming what they already thought. So they come in for us, you know, like, oh, I, I'm, I'm just here for them to rubber stamp what I, what I believe. And then when we start teaching something that's contrary to what they believe, they get all defensive. And I, co-signing. He, you, he wants you to co-sign your bullshit. Right, right. So I, I would always ask him, like, why did you come here with a full cup? I want you to walk outside, pour your cup out, come in with an empty cup and let me fill it with this information. Then you decide whether or not you want to drink it or not. And um, every situation that I go into, the analogy I think of is like to walk into an empty cup. Like I show up here today. So you should walk into your next seminar with a big thing, like 100 Dixie cups. Or how many well, people go to but, And uh, just but, hand them out to everybody and, and say – and. And tell them, Here's, this is your empty cup. Yeah. Start and, here. And when, but, but I mean, give them something to think about forever, you know? But um, even for like relationships, like, um, you know, uh, when we first started the podcast, I was kind of against it, uh, but I've really grown to enjoy it and, and really love it because, uh, you know, it allows me to create gene uh, a bigger genealogy and connect with people and have like fucking amazing conversations. But yet I don't come into anything with the idea that, you know, I'm here for Chris Bell to, you know, fucking uh, somehow co-sign or, or, you know, you know, push my agenda. I, I come into it with endorse, endorse your brand. Yeah. No, yes. it's, it's, it's nothing. It's, it's, it's basically us here. Have a, have a cool conversation because one, uh, um, I'm in a constant state of learning and two, I have an empty cup. I want to hear what you're doing. I want to hear what your, you, you know, what your thoughts are and, uh, you know, and just 
for me personally, just allow personal growth and, uh, like you said, like to have a cool connection and then, you know, hopefully, or, you know, when I see you here in the future, like we're going to be able to have more conversations and right. have a, you know, a deeper connection. You just go into all this stuff, uh, with the idea of, you know, learning and, you know, like, Hey, I'm a white belt dude. I'd go in the same thing with that, that empty cup. And that's a analogy that I remember seeing like years ago in some like Kung Fu movie where these guys came in and the guy was like, you know, pour out your cup, I'm going to fill it. And, um, you know, and then I think if you go into every situation, cause I mean, what you're going into is, you know, you have the idea you're going out there and you're asking all the questions and you're really, you know, a, a lot of times probably, uh, you know, like, like as I was sitting there thinking about some of the movies you've made, I'm like, dude, I, I don't know if I would have the emotional fortitude to be able to go into these situations. Like, to it's, be only able to get, it's only going to get worse. Where do you see this Kratom thing? Because this Kratom oh, thing, fuck. it really focuses in on pain, you know? And um, I, I'm in a lot of pain every day. I had both of my hips completely sawed open. It's the first five minutes of the movie. I show the whole thing. So if you want to see dude, what a double hip replacement surgery looks like. Uh, no, I, 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 dude, I, I have a good friend right now who's uh, 30 years old and he's facing a double hip replacement and they're trying to find anything they can do to progress it. because looks like they're... It looks like they're literally chopping my leg off. Dude, well, if, <laughs> if you watch them do joint replacements, what they do, they fucking sever it and they, they put anchors yeah. and they put new stuff in. But then what's weird for me, and I remember him, uh, you know, when we were talking about this double hip replacement, he's like, dude, you played 10 years in the NFL. You've been basically fucking lifting weights every day since you were 14. Do you have any hip issues? And I'm like, oh, I have a fucking spur in the back of the knee that prevents me from squatting way below parallel and my shoulder's fucked up. You ever uh, see the movie uh, The Avengers? Yeah. Okay, so in the Avengers, you're you're like one, you're like one of those guys, right? Because <laughs> nobody plays in the NFL for ten years and doesn't have an injury. The only person I know that's really like you is Mike O'Hearn. Mike O'Hearn's like never been injured, so if you're like, oh yeah, well I tore my pec and blah blah, he'll be like, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never. Uh, you know what? This is a whole other podcast because uh, Mike O'Hearn to me is like a cartoon character, and I'm totally unsure if he's a real person or not. Oh, so you think he's even a freak? Okay. So uh, not- no, like I, uh, but but almost to the point where like um like. Like I, I remember Mark uh, talking to me about Mike O'Hearn. He's like, "Oh, you know, he's in the uh, 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 you know karate martial arts Hall of Fame." And I'm like, "Did he ever do karate?" And your brother was like, "I don't know." He, he claims did judo. He but, did judo uh, at a pretty high level, and I don't know how good he is. So here's the funny thing about but Mike he says O'Hearn. he played football, but yet we don't know. Uh, but uh, Smelly didn't know where he played football. Well, he so. When I first met him, he told me he played football at University of Washington, but obviously the internet came out and you can't get away with that. Yeah. They won the national championship in 91. And that's when I moved out here in 94 and he would have been on the national championship team. So there's no, there is no record of that. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's like, who knows, who knows, man? Pe- you Dude, know, people, I love, I, I love, is, I love, is, I love life, sh- but I'm fascinated by the fact that people moved to California and this is a big theme in the menace of Venice, the, the script I was writing. People move to California and they just make up who they are. They're like, I'm here. This is what I'm, I'm doing. I'm, you know, I, I came from here and I'm a natural bodybuilder and I'm doing this and this and this. And, and they just make what they want to be. Up. Like, I, I was thinking about that where like I could make up fucking anything. Like people know me now, but like, for example, my girlfriend, she can go in golds and she'd be like, oh yeah, I just moved. Like, she could throw on an, she looks like she's Russian. She could throw on an accent. And she can make up whatever she wants and people would believe her, totally believe her, totally buy into a hook, line, and sinker and even sell those people on products, sell those people on personal training, sell those people that she's the biggest fitness star in Russia. You know what I mean? Like you, yeah. you can do whatever you want out but, here, and people just buy into it. And that's why 
I always say, here's like, the thing, dude, take dude. everything with a grain of salt. You know? Explain this to me, dude. Uh, Michael Hearn, that dude is always like, and I do it. I, I would love to go train with him and try to pick his brain, which I think is, would be hilarious. But uh, that one, that dude is in shape. I've never seen that dude out of shape. He's always no, fucking shredded. His hair always looks good. He's always got a great tan. And I'm like, this dude must put in so much time into like, just man, like, like what, like his whole fucking, does, you know, he does, like, he does. But like when it's kind of weird, it's like when you, it's like, it's kind of gay to talk about, but if you, if you walk around looking like that, they obviously invested, uh, invested oh. a lot of time. You obviously care a lot about it, but like the end result is good. Yeah, like, no, he's like I saw him today at uh, at, it's like six o'clock in the morning, and he looks like you know he looks like he's ready for a photo shoot. Like, <laughs> but but he's dude, I look like a fucking like, bum. I got crushed in my eyes. I'm picking the shit out of my eyes. I'm like, hey, Mikey, how you doing? And he's there with a the camera crew, and they've been filming for two hours already. Yeah, because he trains uh, at like what three thirty four in the morning. So yeah, uh, like, uh, Steve, Steve, I get to Gold's Gym Venice in the morning, and there's two cars in the parking lot: Charles Glass and Michael Hearn. Yeah, no, I, well, and, and Charlie Glass, I met years ago because he was a cow guy. And I remember I was wearing some cow gear when I trained up there. So I've met Charlie Glass years ago. But dude, the hilarious part was I remember uh, Steve Weatherford, who I know, uh, Weatherford's like, yo, man, you got to come up and train with us uh, with Michael Hearn and his crew in the morning. And I was like, oh, shit, let me know. Uh, yeah, what's Weatherford's, um, he was, um, he was on the Giants. Yeah, 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 he was a punter. Yeah. And, and he, I mean, he's fucking shredded. Dude, uh, Weatherford's it, a jacked punter. And now O'Hearn, O'Hearn trains with um, Heath. Evans. Yeah, 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 dude, and, and I, uh, I played with Heath Evans. So yeah, Heath. So on, um, so Mark, my brother, is coming here on Saturday, and on Saturday and Sunday we have a full slate. We have Mike O'Hearn, C.T. Fletcher, Mike Ryan, who used to run Gold's Gym Venice. He'll be the funniest one for sure. He's got the best stories I've ever heard out of anybody uh, in Gold's. We have um, who else? We have we have Heath Evans. So Michael O'Hearn, I think Charles Glass maybe. We're doing a bunch of podcasts with like people that are around here, you know. Cool. And then hopefully, maybe pretty soon, uh, I might start doing a podcast too. We just got to get it up and running. Dude, I would uh, um, if uh, if you could help me land Michael Hearn on Power Athlete Radio, dude. I would forever. I will cook you the the gnarliest steak you've ever had in your whole life. Yeah, I'll get you. I'll get you, uh, Michael. Because one, one, I'd love to connect with him. Two, I'd love to wrap with him about training. And three, uh, I'd love to have him on the podcast. But like, just for years, I was like, there's. I, I like this dude. I mean, what's he's in his mid forties and the dude uh, fucking, he's, he got he's, a phenomenal rug. I mean, I was like, man, I don't know if that hair is real, but this dude is in fucking shape and he's I, strong as fuck. I think he's uh 47 or 48 to tell you the truth. God damn him. But he, but you, you know what it is? He didn't have kids. He's just yeah. got a gang of dogs, which well, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Dogs. Yeah. He, yeah. I'm, I'm like, man, like once you have kids, that's when you fucking all of a sudden starts, Superman you know, starts getting pulled on the Cape. He's an awesome guy. And I'll tell you why. I, what I do like about Mike, I know him, him and my brother have had like this sort of, uh, internet fight. Internet, yeah. It's, you know, it's kind of for fun, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, um, semi-serious, semi-funny, you know, but we, I, I, I really like Mike and I really like Mike because every time I've ever seen him, talked to him, been around him or introduced him to anybody I know, he's nothing but super respectful, super nice. And he will always say hi. And he will always have a smile on his face and he'll always be positive. He'll never be negative. And then people will be negative about him, even in spite of his positivity. So, no, I mean, he, he has a, a, um, an unbelievable amount of fucking people that, him. and uh, uh, if, if anything, I'm like, I've never met the dude. So I try never say anything negative, but I'm like, I will tell you that dude is one. He's strong. He posts videos strong as shit. I, I can't tell you if he played football or if he's a judo player or any of that other stuff, but I know that dude is always in shape. 
fucking always got a smile on his face and that dude is fucking tan like I, i'm like god damn it his tan is phenomenal you you know you know as well as i do that every male that has testosterone in their body wishes they played in the nfl or wishes they fought in the ufc or wishes like they were a movie star so those three things are like things that we, we as like human beings really really strive for it seems like not everybody but, you know, we all, like, I think, like, as a, as a kid, we all dream of, of big, you know, big grand things. So for, you know, a guy like Michael Hearn or you or anybody to invest that much time and energy in doing it, it's actually, like, pretty noble and pretty cool because it's stuff that we all would like to do. We just don't all get to do it, you know? Well, cool, dude. Hey, uh, I'm sure we could go on for six hours, but um, awesome. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm going to cut it here. And uh, dude, I uh, look forward to wrapping you some more. And um, yeah, let's do it again when the movie comes out. So we have something to talk about. We can fuck talk yeah. about and, you know, and then I'll, and I, I got to go back to LA. Uh, I'll, I'll be in LA at the end of, end of April. I'll hit you up, man. We can get together and fucking. Absolutely, man. Come down to Venice see. and uh, pound some iron. I would nuts. love to. I'd love to. Perfect. Thanks, amigo. Yeah, talk soon. Anytime. Later. See you, bro. Bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Follow Chris Bell on his Instagram page at Big Strong Fast. You also heard it here first, people. His film on the benefits of the ketogenic diet is in the works. Until its release, I suggest you check out Bigger, Stronger, Faster for the first, maybe third, or in my case, the tenth time. And finally, if you've ever met John and thought maybe he didn't like you, consider the following. A really big guy that's that's so big. When I met him, like the first three times, I think he just looked right over me. So like I told I told my brother one day, I'm like, I don't know if that Wellborn guy likes me. He's like, he probably just didn't see you. Until next time, bye. <laughs>